0: from the driver's seat of my van. I'm sitting on, uh, I don't know what the fuck street this is, a major street in Coeur Idaho. Idaho, uh, outside a cafe that I am about to uh, go into and upload this podcast. So uh, yeah, it's Monday, it's about uh, noon, and I'm a little late on this, sorry about that, but you know how things are uh i'm on the road i've been on the road for a little over a week now it's been fantastic uh thank you so much to all of you who have been generous uh in in contributing to the podcast support fund at patreon specifically uh some of you specifically to uh, to help out with the van trip and the renovation and all that it's been really cool to be out on the road uh You know, just to give you an example, I downloaded a bunch of movies and TV shows, and I've got uh, books with me. I've got all this stuff to do, you know, when I get bored. Uh, But the fact is that every night there's a fire, and there's stars, and there's the moon, and I don't get to any of that stuff. I just sit there and stare at the fire. You know, what else is there to do? It's it's the best entertainment there is. So, uh, yeah, I have uh, I came up through California. I recorded a few podcasts along the way. Uh, stopped in Santa Cruz. Recorded a podcast with Jim Fadiman, who's uh, uh, an expert on LSD and uh, microdosing. He's sort of become a bit of uh the godfather of the microdosing movement uh that was fantastic um recorded another podcast with a woman who's a sex educator that was also great really enjoyed that and then went to uh continued up to albion california which is a small town on the coast in mendocino um where i um met tim scully who's uh was an acid cook back in the 60s. Uh, I think the Sunshine Makers was the name of the documentary, recent documentary that featured him and um, hung out with him for a while, had a really great conversation as well. So anyway, getting a lot of really good podcasts recorded as I move along. Uh, This episode was recorded in Topanga before I left. It's uh, Peter Joseph who is uh, well-known for starting uh, what's come to be known as the Zeitgeist Movement. And um, he's a filmmaker, he's a writer, he's a thinker, he's a visionary. He's a cool guy, really smart guy, and uh, I, I very much enjoyed our conversation, and I uh, hope you will too. If you want to support the podcast, patreon.com is a great way to do it. You just go on there and find Tangentially Speaking and you can throw up a a buck a month or five bucks a month or ten bucks a month. Or there's one guy who's giving two hundred and fifty dollars a month uh, for ten months specifically to support the the van project. Albert. Thank you, Albert. Uh, Yeah. So it's uh, it's a cool way to support the podcast. Also, if you buy stuff on Amazon you can go through my website, chrisryanphd.com, click on the Amazon link, and uh, between 4 and 8% of whatever you spend at Amazon will come into my grubby little hands. That is not to support the podcast. Amazon does not endorse this podcast in any way. Wouldn't want you to get the wrong idea there. Apparently there's been some uh, drama involving Amazon and various podcasters uh we're allowed to mention that we have this Amazon affiliate situation but uh in no way should we imply that Amazon supports or endorses this podcast because they don't at all but you do and if you can't afford to do it financially it's very cool to tell your friends about it or uh You know, whatever. iTunes reviews are always helpful and stuff like that. So I'm on the road. I will continue posting once a week. It might not be as regular as you're used to um, because it's sometimes hard to find a cafe that has decent Internet connectivity that I can upload a massive file. But
1: uh,
0: Harley's Harley Alert. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'll I'll keep posting once a week. Thank you so much for your support. Hope you're doing well out there. Uh, you know, get outside and look at the stars occasionally. Believe me, it it does wonders for you. All right, sending lots of uh, bonobo love to all of you people out there in the world. Thanks for listening to this. And I'll catch you in a week. All right, cool. I'm here with Peter Joseph. Hey, Chris. How are you, Peter? Good, man. Good to be here. Thanks for coming up to Topanga. Absolutely beautiful out here. Did you come out from the PCH? No. Oh, good. Uh, yeah. I think it's closed. I forgot to warn you. Oh, yeah, they've been it. doing construction. Yeah. No, fire. Oh, really? Yeah, there's, There were, uh, there was a fire a couple days ago. The whole canyon was closed off from the south and the north. So no one can two fires. Oh, that's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, if you know the back roads, you can get out. Sure, but for commuters, it was pretty fucked. <laughs> anyway, thanks for coming up.
2: <laughs> it does not feel like California though. It feels like you're in a completely different place. I loved it up here.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's when I tell people I live in L.A., they picture something that does not include the red shouldered hawk out the door there uh-huh. screaming, and owls and coyotes and stuff. Yeah. But. Yeah, I live it here. Nice. So, uh I've been looking forward to talking to you for a long time. I think there's so much overlap in the kind of work that uh, you're doing in your world view and um a lot of the the raving and ranting that I do, uh in terms of the, the sort of trajectory of modern and modern culture and I mean I don't know I haven't had a chance to read your book yet, but thank you for sending sure, it sure. to me. It's uh here, we'll, we'll hold it up for the <laughs> folks who are watching the video. Uh, it's the human rights movement. The Here new it is. Human. It's freshly human. out. The new human rights movement. Yeah, yeah. reinventing <laughs> the economy and ending oppression. Yeah. So, what's the what's when people ask you what's the book about? What what's your every author has to come up with their yeah. thirty second seconds. Well, and I have that same look on my face when people ask me that yeah. about a book. Like, oh, you want me to.
2: Well, anything uh, three years of work <laughs> yeah. into 30 seconds. Well, more like 10 years. Ultimately, when yeah. I started this this kind of journey to figure out what the hell's going on in society, you know, long story short, if you can't, if we can't change the economy, we're not going to change human rights, civil relations, and all the oppressive factors that have been with human society, including gender relations, that have been continuing to to be this underlying uh, turbulence that have kept people separated, in-group, out-group. So we have a competitive-based economy, and as I argue in the book, and it transcends things that have historically been talked about with respect to, say, Marxism or you know, collectivist versus, versus individualist societies, it's about public health. And if you take a public health perspective, or I'll put it this way, if you were to take all of the peer review literature on what constitutes good psychology, good you know, child upbringing, preconditions that allow for the best of the human condition to come out. You know, not the fear reactions of the lower brain, but the actual prefrontal cortex and our consciousness, our ability to control ourselves, to have incentives that actually reinforce the best of us as opposed to the worst, mm-hmm. which is what we're doing now. We can't continue to ignore the nature of our economy anymore. We're driving, we've been driving the earth into the ground and driving society into destabilization because of a comp- Scarcity-driven, dominance-oriented, oppressive economy, right. and we've conditioned ourselves over the past, especially since kind of the Reagan Thatcher era, as far as the West, that the government, state, and effectively democracy is bad because that's really what it implies when you hear people talk about the negative.
0: Yeah, well, of the Reagan state. explicitly said the government is the problem. Yep. And- yeah, they wanted to make it small enough to drown in a bathtub. I think the was the, the illusion is. that there is
2: no society? I mean, that's a profound Margaret one. Thatcher exactly. said that explicitly. And it's, it's completely nonsensical. It, it empowers a, a Machiavellian quality. Mm-hmm. It empowers an individualistic, in-group, uh, oppressive type of tendency in human culture and the new human rights movement is about shifting that precondition, shifting the economic focus from a competitive to a collaborative. I'm very specific about it, too. This isn't just conjecture. and me talking about broad ideological things that should happen, ideally, in the sense that, oh, we can just gesture this. Oh, let's just start to work together. Now, there are specific things, step-by-step, step, we could do to transition our economy into something very different that support different incentives, different values, and effectively a revolution of the self and a revolution of society. And right. I, I don't mean that in any kind A metaphysical sense. I'm very literal with this, and again, you take all the public health science. You were to put this into a giant computer that could tell you what the social system would be Mm -hmm. that would actually support the best of the human condition. I think uh, the research in that book. uh, So, what would
0: such a social system look like? What are some characteristics? I mean, obviously, um, you were talking about uh, non-competitive. Sort of egalitarian ethos. Yes. I
2: mean, ninety-nine percent of human history, as you know, is an egalitarian hunter-gatherer society. See, science. I
0: was trying to maneuver you into
2: that. You just, <laughs> you just turned around and marched right in. And anyone that says I thought that thought I was going to outsmart you there. <laughs> no, anyone that says that you know we are just bound by our our psychology, our you know our evolutionary psychology to be these competitive. Again, yeah, yeah. That's just patently false, and without yeah. any regard for history. So you know we know that we have that inside of us. I mean, what you just said is effectively the broad view. You need a you, you need incentives for collaboration, not this sort of half incentive of collaboration that's done through competition. Right. That's what we have now. Right. It's a sort of a pseudo collaboration that happens after right. the fact. We get together to fuck the other guys, and then certain yeah, but we agree to it. Right. <laughs> that's why it's collaborative. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. You know, at the basis of our society is really sharing, right. but we do it through this this proxy mechanism of not sharing initially. So. Two companies come together, like a, you know, cell phones. They're constantly making dumb little and little uh, improvements that they think they can market to people. And then, that rather than actually work together and think about what could be unified, they forget the waste and planned obsolescence, the constant re- repetition of production that's destroying the planet. Right. If you actually had, instead of this long-term process of innovation through competition, you actually had a network system where people just thought about what they wanted to do, what the public actually had interest for, democratizing the economy is effectively what I'm talking about. Right. Participatory economics is the final stage of this long arc of our battle with ourselves to figure out why we continue to be at war with ourselves. Right. And I think once we have that, and I think other people have talked about this too, not to keep rambling, but you know, Martin Luther King before he died, Talk explicitly about an economic bill of rights in the United States. Right. And he promoted at that time, which was the most advanced thing and completely radical for the time, universal basic income, which is now right. being talked about. Tested, Again, it's coming fitment. back. Yeah. It is.
0: hawaii's starting to lay the groundwork I just read.
2: Is there, are they really? Yeah. yeah. Just,
0: just within the last few days. There's a
2: caveat to that, which we can talk about. I, I advocate it. I think it's a great idea as a step, but right. there's something to be recognized for it. Uh, excuse me. There's a problem with it in a society that's driven by debt and scarcity where especially now with automation, there are not enough jobs. Their jobs are slowly inching out, we know right, this. Right. Um, and what has to happen is what happened in the 70s. In the 70s, there was massive credit expansion in the West because people needed money. And they, they kind of, uh, it, the kind of surplus that was generated by industry was so much that the corporations had to keep selling. So now they just started to employ credit expansion. So people would keep buying and consuming, you know, fighting the communists by consuming more. You know, there's a whole mm. amazing history I detail in the book about how we were turned into a consumer culture. Point being is that you have to get money in the pockets of people to support the economy. Right. And universal basic income is actually kind of an elitist solution, even though it will help. It will improve public health, but today there's a reason why you see the intuition of the Zuckerbergs and so on start to say, well, "Yeah, universal basic or, or Elon Musk, universal basic income is a great idea," because they know, in the subconscious level, I don't know, this isn't conspiratorial. They just know because of the work that they're in that people have to get money in this new automated society, right? And that money, because of the nature of structural classism, I call it, will still. Come out of nothing and filter right back up to the elite. Right. And right now, what well, we have eight people with more money than the bottom 50%. Right. And that's only going to get worse. Right. So my fundamental question
0: about yeah. these things, uh, this this economic inequality that's obviously growing, it, it's worse than it's been in in since the 1920s, I guess, yep. and maybe even worse than then at this point. Um, you know, I was working on this this book, and and I was looking at the economics, and you were talking about studies of wellness and happiness and you know contentment with life and all that sort of thing and i i came upon all this research literature showing that there is no correlation above about seventy thousand dollars a year between wealth and life satisfaction so that led me to this giant conundrum where You know, I I sort of looked at economy as I used to get together with my buddies and play poker every Sunday night. Uh Right. And it's like I show up with 40 bucks. I leave with 20. That means somebody else is going home with 20 more or, or, you know, as a as a group, they're they're leaving with 20 more than they came with. But if if you look at economy the way I just described and you say, well, wait a minute, even the rich are not benefiting. So those eight people who control more than fifty percent of the total wealth of the country, they're miserable Planet. motherfuckers. Yeah. You know, they're they're yeah. off in their yacht, they're lonely, they're they're suspicious of their friends, yep. they're they're probably addicted to all sorts of drugs. They're miserable fucking losers. So if they're losing mm-hmm. Then we're not playing poker in someone's house where my loss is your gain. We're playing poker in a casino mm. where we all lose. Right. So who's the house? <laughs> what, what do you think about that? Who is the house? Who's benefiting from all this? Even in
2: terms of happiness. You mean, because, yeah, because obviously
0: I, I mean, the money is going to these people. The but. but see, I think it's a, I think, I look at it at, on a meta level. Okay. I think that. And, and you've studied this far more than I, so this is just, I'm not, you know, I don't want to argue with you, I just want to introduce this as, sure, a, as sure. a topic, because yeah. I've got this sense that, you know, you said we're at war with ourselves, that was a phrase you used a minute ago, mm-hmm. and certainly, um, you know, that's a, a a powerful way of looking at it, and clearly there are conflicts within the human psyche and within human nature and all that. And in society, too. And in society. Looking at holistic society. Sure. Yeah. But I'm coming to this sense that we are at war with, and this is gonna sound crazy, <laughs> um, it's like one step from lizard people, but <laughs> essentially we are embedded within organisms that just like bacteria is embedded within us. Okay. Con- life is a, is a congregation of other life. Sure. If you look at any sort of level of complexity on the scale of life, each higher level is composed of lower levels that all come together and form a system. And I, I know you're into systems thinking, sure. and you're, you're very conscious of this stuff. So my feeling is, when I started looking at this, I was like, "Okay, wait a minute. You know, everything congregates and becomes something else. So what have we become? Hmm. What are we? What life form are we embedded within?" And my answer was institutions, yep, religions, corporations, governments, and they're at they are uh, functioning on a level, kind of like the gods on Mount Olympus, you know, in, in ancient Greece, where they've got their dramas and their conflicts and things, and we get swept around, without really even knowing what the fuck is
2: happening. Oh, no, sure. So
0: absolutely. I, I kind of look at these very wealthy people as victims,
2: just like the rest oh, of. I us. Oh, I agree. I agree absolutely. I don't demonize any. Defo- I don't demonize really anybody. I mean, there we can argue people's, you know, moral compass on a couple different levels, but they're all we're all victims in some on some level of the culture right. and the world we've been brought into and you're absolutely right regarding the happiness issue um, i'll come back to that structuralism you just mentioned too and the second chapter of the book i describe all the research about how people that gain lots of wealth and it's very well researched that automatically lose empathy the right. higher they go up right. and become more miserable Mm-hmm. And become more addiction prone because money right. becomes an addiction right and they become they become more well anyway, I hate to be cliche here in the in the in the modern world, but we have the icon of the trump presidency yeah, and the all the values that clearly he puts forward winning right you know a complete lack of empathy you know right. and, and rewardingly so like they he appreciates that he doesn't care yeah and that that kind of embodies i think the the psychology the social psychology that we we have as not only a culture, but definitely pollutes the wealthy more than anybody else, which is really troubling because it's obviously the wealthy that have the lobbying power. It's obviously the wealthy that have been in control of government, right. not just in this modern period, but throughout history, going all the way back to monarchs, those that have the most resources, and they are by nature the most indifferent. Nature meaning they've there's something about this arc. The more power and money you have, specifically money, Exactly, mean, Yeah. So we're kind of screwed in that sense because and if we rely and on it's our objective, what's sorry, sorry to it interrupt
0: is. you, but it's imge- you're not just spouting some bullshit no, no. here. There are studies showing that the more well someone has, the less able they are to perceive pain in someone else's face. Did you
2: see that study? Exactly. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. Precise. No, It's in the book, too. I yeah. talk about a lot of those studies uh, with that conclusion that, yeah, we're, we're stuck in a power system that's fundamentally indifferent by this kind of determinism that's right. happened. Uh, we well, you, could, you could speculate on the deeper causes of that as well. As well,
0: that's God. where I'm trying to go. Uh-huh. The determinism that you're referring to is... It's because we're so accustomed to thinking of it, I know you're involved in the Occupy movement mm-hmm. and a big supporter of this, and we're so uh, accustomed to thinking the one percent and versus the ninety-nine percent. Sure. And my feeling is like, it's no, it's all, it's a hundred percent against this system, whether we call it uh, corporations or we call it uh, you know institutions or we call it the, the sort of the mega organism or whatever it is. Whose agenda is against ours. And the difference between the one, per- the one percent are like the, I forget the name in, in, in the prison camps, the, the Jews who controlled the, the other Jews. Okay. And so they got a little right. extra bread, a little extra soup, but they were the ones who turned in and, sure. you know, like that kind of thing. Yep. Like they're, they've sold their souls for a little extra soup at the end of the day. Right. But they're still in the fucking camp with the rest of us. Well, the
2: other parallel to that is uh, a, is American slavery and the the separation. And this is talked about a great length through story. And actually Gandhi and Martin Luther King talked about it a great deal. That's where I read about it. I didn't even realize, No one taught me this when I was in high school regarding American slavery. Uh, white white poverty was just as bad, you mm. know, especially right after the Civil War. Right. And the political establishment said, well, you know what? If the poor whites and the poor blacks ever get together. Well, we right. had a serious problem on our hand. Right. So the the use of the, basically the whites were given superiority in their Christian white status. They identified with the masters and the political establishment, and they're the ones that were basically they could and then by some legislation they could bully slaves or even former slaves. You know all that history of sure. legal, legal racism.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah and. And so that's a similar parallel where where you divide and conquer ultimately. Because yeah. it's really, ultimately, all of that in history, not to change the subject, was an issue of class war. Right. I mean, and people forget that all of the slavery was just about profit. I mean, even the slaves that were sold from Africa, I mean, white Settlers didn't just go steal Africans; they were being sold the market, by kings. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then so anyway, in so in that exchange for sugar and rum. Right, yeah. and going back to your structural issue, the, the book opens with the, the concept of structuralism, which is put forward by, <laughs> by Johan Galtung mm-hmm. and Gandhi, and is a is a brilliant notion. It's a little bit antagonistic towards rationalism because it argues that people are not really rational. They are defined by the structures they inhabit or are born into. It right. seems like common sense to us. But right. I think a lot of people, especially in the moral climate, the legal system, everyone thinks everyone's just a perfectly rational being. The economics system. Economics. Is but it, but, yeah. yeah, economic totally.
0: man is a fucking joke. Yeah, But totally. it's the foundation of economics.
2: Right, and that, yeah. hence its myopic uh, unfoldings. Yeah. And so with that structuralism, with the institutions you mentioned, uh, and ultimately the social system, and ultimately the social system foundationally oriented with economics, you call it capitalism, market economics, it's a scarcity-driven social right. order. That's, right. I think we can get rid of most of those terms. And there's been, ever since the Neolithic Revolution, you know, ten, twelve thousand 12,000 years ago, there's been a geographical determinism that defined the way people needed to be. So you had settled agrarian societies, some were in more opportune areas with better fertile land and so on, some were not. You had have specialization of labor. You had eventually let that leads to property because you want to protect it because your labor translates, you know, the old labor theories sure. and so on. John and God. the land and the animals. Exactly. And you build out power, system, war. You build out this. So I think what we've been on is a natural trajectory. You know, I mean, some have argued that the Neolithic Revolution was kind of a mistake on our part. Uh, that <laughs> Who would argue such a thing? <laughs> and it's a, it's, a, it's a good thing to think about. Yeah. Um, but it, So we've now reached the point where this yeah. whole Malthusian scarcity Driven world. Right. Um, since the Industrial Revolution, we have this new potential. This new potential for humanity to stop war with itself, to stop feeling right. we to exploit and enslave each other, like what we effectively do in the corporate system. Yeah. Which effectively we do in even the entrepreneurial system. People don't realize that they're constantly in this war with each other, and they, you know, I've had debates with libertarians, and it's amazing the kind of backwards thinking where up is down and left is right where they think that the the act of trade is not actually dominant strategizing. It's some kind of mutual exchange. of It's mm-hmm. a very, very abstract notion that is put forward in, in these theories of free market. And it, it, the truth is that when you have a trade-dominant, scarcity-based society, you automatically lead to everything that we've seen today, including the American empire. Yeah. And it spirals out like that. And the question is, how do we start to harness the new technology, the new capacity, I should say, we have... To create an abundance, to create a strategic abundance, right. not a utopian abundance, right. to sidestep the materialism and vanity, to sidestep the reward of status that has been so neurotically ingrained. Again, going back to the Trump idea and mm. the, you know, the trophy wife and right. and all these accepted misogynistic ideas, all these accepted just... Trophy uh, wife who hates your fucking god. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. my God. I'm sure she could handle him when he was just you know a dickhead businessman. Now he's the president and she has to be seen all the time. So and that's the ultimate, you know, where I argue towards the end is that there are a number of transitions, and, you know, we could talk about that more so, um, that can happen, that are based on current trends that are not over-idealized, that if the public was to get behind it, if we, you have to have a movement to do this, because the, neur- the neuroses of power isn't just going to turn. It's going to keep drilling the earth into the ground, and it's going to keep basically thriving on the destruction of other peoples, because that's kind of the way the scarcity-based trade strategizing dominance patterns, yeah. ultimately. Or, you know, there's a guy, Tim Ingold. Are you are familiar with him? Oh, yeah. He's an yeah, anthropologist. Did. Yeah. He did a great little quote. I, it just stunned me when I read it. Not a quote, but he talked about the difference between the hunter-gatherer societies and modern agrarian mm. you know, trading societies. And the difference, and it's such a profound notion, is that first, the hunter-gatherer society had a gift-giving sentiment. Mm. When the early civilizations were met, you know, people talk about this, like Peter Faber or Margaret Mead, uh, they would try to Westerns would try to exchange, right. and they would be offended by that. Yeah. And now we have instead of gift giving and harmony and, and what was effectively a voluntary type of relationship, right. trade strategizing dominance. Right. The, the expect, expectation of reciprocation. Right. And it might seem like a very trivial uh, thing to a lot of people, but that's a powerful, profound. It's a uh, huge underline. difference. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah you, you. I, I was. Um quoting from uh, Columbus's journals in his first j- journey, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, He was actually, in his journals, they were written as letters to the king and queen, and so if a ship was going back, he'd send it back to them to, you know, recount what he had seen and all this. And it's really quite stunning. You might have read this, actually. I think Howard Zinn Quotes from it in the People's History of the USA. It's
2: been a long time, but okay. yeah, it's a
0: great book. And yeah, anyone, yeah. anyone listening to this who hasn't read that, um, oh yeah. it's a great place to start. Definitely. Um, anyway, he's he's uh, he talks about the, his first meeting with on uh, uh, Hispaniola with the Taíno or the the people there, and he talks about how beautiful they are, physically beautiful and kind. And if you express admiration for anything, they just give it to you with yeah. no expectations. And and he says they're surely um, the most wonderful people on the planet they're the most wonderful people in the world mm-hmm. and then the next sentence is with 50 men we could enslave That's them right. all I remember that now yeah Got what it. the fuck dude he said you, something like you yeah. found paradise yeah, yeah. and the first thing you're thinking is we can enslave these wonderful people instead of join them yeah. you know they have a better life than you so do be inspired by them yeah They're they're the embodiment of of Christ, you know, (laughs) the actual Christ. And instead, they're saying, "Well, no." Christian values. Yeah, 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 yeah. crazy. Anyway, yeah, that's horrible.
2: I remember that. uh, I think he also made a comment about we tried to show them a sword, and oh, and they they cut their hands on it. Yeah, and we all laughed. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, It's it's uh, it's a very interesting thing. I mean, that's this book I'm working on, "A Civilized to Death." It's called, and a lot of it is. It's, it's very parallel to a lot of the work you're doing. As I said earlier, it's questioning, first of all, it's, it's questioning the neo-Hobbesian narrative that life before the state was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Sure. That's wrong on every count, Absolutely. right? Then it's questioning the notion that civilization is itself a great gift to humanity. Like, let's look at that. Like, sure. what has it actually given us? In the us? sense of modern civilization, yeah. It currently functions, yeah. Yeah, I mean, forget about feudalism. <laughs> Jesus Christ. But, like, where we are now, even you and me, even the people at the top of the heap and, you know, the most wealthy parts of the world with the most freedom and the most technological um, adaptations and all this, how does our quality of life compare to that of a typical hunter gatherer yeah. 20,000 years ago in terms of? You know, how, how's our sex life? Mm-hmm. How's our, how are our friendships and sense of community? Right. How's our, our physical health, our, our dental health, our cardiovascular health? Sure. Uh, you know, you just, what's our relationship like with uh, children? And, and what's our spiritual life like? How, yeah. how, how fearful are we of death? Mm-hmm. I mean, pick your fucking matrix. Yeah. And this idea that civilization has been this incredible gift to humanity just falls apart. It does. But, as, as you said earlier, it's so hard to get people to see that because they're born into this structural, their brains, or it's kind of like, uh, you know, those things, those, those ice cubes, you can get those weird ice cube shapes where uh-huh. you can make like a popsicle that looks like a lizard
2: or something. Yep. That's like our brains, yeah. you know, they go into a mold and, and they come out. Those yeah. are, that's, there's so much great educational value in that early history. And sadly, it, most people really aren't even aware of, of yeah. you know, part of our time. Well, and they that's really no did. fucking accident. Well, of course.
0: Right? Of course. No, the, the, a, a society wants to replicate itself like any living thing, mm-hmm. so it promotes the the information that makes it look good.
2: Exactly. Which, you know, is not fucking science, it's propaganda. Yeah. The climate of opinion, I think Carl Becker called it. Mm. People only reference and annotate in history what they identify with. Right. And suddenly becomes shifted yeah, um, yeah so your background's in economics you were working on wall street or something no I, I did actually but uh, my background is self, self-taught basically I went to school as a classical percussionist mm. and realized after going into enormous amounts of debt in New York City that that wasn't where I wanted to go you were at the new school right yeah exactly mm. and I decided that I didn't want to be a classical percussionist in orchestral settings that's sort of the, the corporate content. you like it? the guy in the back with the kettle drum? Pretty is much, yeah, know? pretty much. But I was more soloistic in my interests. So I decided I'd just take it on as a hobby and do something else. And at that point in time, all of my friends that were in the arts ended up in advertising, mm. which is just a natural gravitation. Of course, a monstrous industry in New York. I, that was where I first started to see the enormous amounts of wealth that people have. It was monstrous really, in both senses of the word. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> huge yeah. and horrible. Exactly, real estate advertising. So these are people uh, that would. Buy penthouse apartments in Central Park West and pay thirty thousand dollars a month in in uh, uh, whatever it's called your maintenance fee. Just exceptional. <laughs> like we made movies basically yeah. for the wealthy to look at to idealize themselves. Right. Speaking of the vain, right. um, so I got sick of that. I, even in my in my background, I still generally didn't like advertising. I, I grew up with like George Carlin and Bill Hicks and, you know, read a lot of uh, extraneous materials <laughs> yeah. or fringe. That was my yeah. world. I was... Yeah. Uh, where did you grow up? North Carolina. Uh, and were your parents hippies or why'd you have kind of. George Carlin? in Kind of. House? Yeah, yeah they, they were fans. Absolutely. That's great. Definitely. And so at that point, I was like, yeah, I'd hate this corporate hierarchy. I don't like this. I certainly don't like the hours, the insanity, the, the advertising industry. Is just so much money's into it and the hours are terrible and the people are crazy. It's just a unique... A phenomenon in and of itself. So I was like, I got to get out of this. I don't know what else to do. These are my skill sets as an artist. You end up there. But Wall Street, I said, well, this is the only occupation. I didn't give a damn what, what it meant. So I was like, this is the only occupation I know of that doesn't have a client or a boss. So I gravitated to this. I took mentorships with the savings I had built up from from advertising, and these guys were not on Wall Street, but they were private traders. Hmm. And they worked, you know, for private accounts. Some of them worked in uh, the business community. So, so you, so how old are you? At I this was about transition? twenty. Um, it was about
0: 23 when I started doing that. Yeah, young. Yeah. So is that where you got into filmmaking and
2: the advertising? Well, I get to that in a second. Yeah. I actually never intended to be a filmmaker at all. Yeah. I did do editing and stuff like that and animation. It was more graphic stuff. Right. But I did, we did do composite stuff, green screen stuff, which I right. still do. And this is day. what, the 90s? Yeah, this is about, probably, well, about 2000. 2000. 2000, 2000 okay. right. Yeah, 2001, 2002 is when I started to inch out of that into Wall Street. And for the next five years, I did half work in advertising part-time and then traded for my own account. So I did extremely short-term like, trading, day trading. Yeah, exactly. Right. And in that world, because I was in circles of people that you know were very wealthy that did this, you know, in these mentorships, is a very, very uh, unique field. I won't go into what it takes to be a pattern trader. But a very unique analysis. So I had, the people I worked around were not cutthroat, you know, you know, horrible people. They wanted out just like I did. They just didn't want to deal with the corporate hierarchy. So there's hmm. not to say that a lot of people in Wall Street and, and trading are necessarily good folks. They still have that psychology of gain and abstraction. It's, right. I call it drone warfare economics now. It's like you, at least on, on Main yeah, Street, you yeah. kind of you're can see... You're not sticking anyone, yeah. 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 You can see the humanity, but yeah. not in Wall Street. Right. That's why it has a reputation that it does, rightfully right. so, and should be abolished, as far as I can Yeah, you don't
0: see the, the grandparents whose account you're emptying with yeah. your bullshit.
2: exactly. Move. Or the, yeah. the currency that you're shorting from some country where right. you're throwing people into poverty. Right. So yeah. I did that, and then I realized uh, towards about 2006... Um, after I made this first production called Zeitgeist, which was not actually a perform—excuse me, not actually a film, it was a performance piece I did as a catharsis. Uh, I realized that at that point in time this con- this convergence of things happened. And by the way, i sorry, I should step back. That's where I learned about economics. So I studied human psychology and I studied pattern behavior and uh, all the history of. Of effectively macroeconomics because that's what you look at uh, when you start to trade in the micro realm. So, so that's that's can the introduction. Flush that out a little. Okay. I, I mean, I, I'm really interested in this stuff. Well, a pattern. Well, it's it's a specific to to pattern trading where you have different synergetic forces that have create probabilities. So if you have if you have, for example, um, a certain industry that you know broadly has a certain trend, like a sector, like in technology, and you're, it's pattern training, so you're using visual cues, you chart it. Have you ever seen a stock chart? Yeah. There's, there's basically, sure. just like in human nature, just like in human culture, in human there are patterns that exist that we we do. Right. And they're represented actually quite cleanly on charts of mass human behavior, especially with stocks or commodities that have a lot of human activity. So you're looking at like purchasing trends or, or yeah, pretty a much. certain right and selling. moving in a certain direction? Well, on the macro level, you have so sector information. Right. So what is this entire sector doing? All the conglomerate companies right. together. Right. They, you know, they How can, many cars of, are being sold? Well, you see it in price Patterns collectively, right. mathematically redefine as as this trend. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And then you start to go smaller and smaller and smaller. And long story short, it's kind of hard to explain without showing it to you visually. Right. You can create um, you create a higher probability of assuming a stock is going to move in a certain direction by watching the macro influences, and you start to you start to navigate lower and lower and lower. I'm trying to think of a parallel. Um, I can't think of a parallel that would be easy to relate to. But at the end of the day, what these traders do is they see a certain probabilistic pattern happening in multiple time frames across multiple sectors or multiple layers within a sector. Again, it's hard for me to explain without showing it to you. And then at a certain point, the probabilities are in their favor based on their analysis, and they buy or sell. And age. are you buying on margin or are you just buying I, the stock? I, and I did buy on margin because I didn't have much in my account so right. to make it worthwhile. <laughs> I mean, a good trader maybe will make like, maybe if they're good, maybe like 10%. And that's like, if you can get like 10%, 12% a year, that's hmm. where hedge fund managers, you know, make eventually millions a year. Right, yeah. Because they have so much money. But if you right. make that on a $100,000 account, you can't really live off of it. Right, right, And that's with margin, you know, they have like a $25,000 account. So anyway, I didn't make enough to do that because I never had the base to really do it. And I kind of just faded out of it. And it was at that point in time, though, I came to the realization that what am I doing? <laughs> I've worked in the two worst industries probably on the planet, advertising and Wall Street. I just had this amazing uh, epiphany. And apart from making this film, this film that eventually became a film called Zeitgeist, which some love it, some hate it. Uh, it was really an expression of the time as far as, uh, as far as I was concerned. I eventually made two sequels to kind of clarify my position and re-target the audience that had followed the first one into new focuses, specifically economics, which mm-hmm. surprised me today. And of course, the Zeitgeist Movement was born out of that, which has been around for 9, 10 years, which is an attempt yeah. to galvanize the world, you know, to whatever a feeble attempt it could be. You know, we still have about 140 chapters across 60 countries. And that's the trajectory of it. But you know, going yeah. back to your question about economics, it was all that trading stuff and the and the advertising stuff. Because if, if it wasn't for the advertising, I wouldn't have really seen you were behind how enemy lines. Oh, there. totally. Yeah. Oh, you wouldn't believe some of the the wealth. I think if the public really experienced the wealth that the upper one, the upper ten percent has. They would be they would be so stunned. Like I don't even think it's in the public consciousness. Yeah. They, don't, they don't even know how these people live. They just know the <laughs> statistics. They don't know like what it feels like to to fly in a private jet yeah. like, every other day, going yeah. on. like stuff yeah. like that.
0: You yeah. know? no lines, just no walk lines. Right, right in. Yeah, it's straight out of. You know, Although it's, but again, I mean, I get back. I, I take your point, and I think you're right, especially uh, in terms of you know people who can't afford to to buy medicine for their kids right. or or you know feed their kids or whatever. I mean, there's that's incredible, but but still, even at that very top level, I have a friend who who lives on a yacht. It's, mm-hmm. it's one of those like mega mega yachts, literally a mega yacht, sure, sure. you know, Russian oligarch kind of thing. Uh, no helicopter, but he's like one step below the helicopter. Okay, you know, he's got the sauna and the jacuzzi on the top deck and the whole thing, right? And he made his money on wind farming, so Interesting. it's kind of not
2: evil, I guess, you know. So. My argument, if someone has a billion dollars, no matter how they achieved it, They should feel pretty bad about (laughs) this. Well, there is that. Yeah, I I think, and and there's a relativity to that. Obviously, I mean, where do you draw the line? And obviously, the first world compared to the third world, you could argue the same kind of thing. Someone lives in a house like this. Say, whoa, whoa! How dare you live in this house where you we have people living on the street? And but there does come a line, I think, that becomes relatively obvious after a certain point where the elitism is is so severe, where the options are so severe, and when you look at and compare to how much destitution there is you can't justify it anymore. And I think yeah. the billionaire class, really, it's a kind, it is a mental illness.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's definitely... Anyway, I, with, without getting into, sure. into that too much, with, the point I was going to make is, oh. you know, I've spent some time on the yacht uh, yeah. with him, and the truth is that, you know, he's got a, a chef on the yacht who, who cooks. Mm-hmm. But do you know where they get their food? Where? Costco. Costco. Yeah. So all the you know, I go I go in the morning to to you know, grab something and I go into the freezer and it's all whatever that Costco brand is, I've heard Kirkland or something. Wow. It's all Costco stuff. So it's like, all right, it's a yacht, you're a millionaire, you know, you've got Egyptian cotton or whatever. But at the end of the day you're still wiping your ass with Costco yeah. toilet paper and right. you're eating Costco. not that there's anything wrong with Costco. That my whole point is like it's you're still just a fucking person exactly you know and that gets back to my earlier point about how all that wealth you know it's like i have a line in in the book and it'll probably offend some people where i say a watch tells the time a rolex tells the world you're insecure
2: (laughs) you know (laughs) it's like a watch is a nice thing to have you don't need a fucking rolex i can't even imagine having a mansion where you have to deal with taking care of something so severe, even a yacht to me sounds yeah. like too much. And then you yeah. have to employ all these people. Yeah. Like to me, in a, to me, utopia—if I want to use that word—is not having any property. Right is to have the well, freedom. fucking hunter gatherers? Sure, exactly. Everything you Absolutely. need is just around you. And I think there's a minimalistic culture. They, they, they did a, they've done you know, research on millennials these days, and they're gravitating more towards a socialistic view, right. statistically. And they also have a deep minimalism. Like many of them don't want. They're going reverting back to you know not smartphones. They van they want life. A simple, That's up? why I got that van. That's yep. a big thing. Totally. Every, like young people are like fuck it, I'll live in my van. Yes, yeah, sure. you know. <laughs> And I think that's a much healthier place to be. And it, re- it reverses, and I talk about that in the book too, it reverses the, that neuroses that's been generated by status and property and the right. and how they're associated. So do you think we're at
0: a unique historical moment where people are questioning this in ways they never have before? Or is
2: that just you and me in our little bubble? Yeah, Oops, that's a question. That you know, I, with the internet and, the, and communication people and the way that systems work, um, information is now so tailored in pockets where if you're a... If you're a Republican, alt-right, Trump supporter, you can pretty much just submerge yourself in only the information that you agree with. Right. It, whether you search for it, whether the advertising algorithms are thrown or whether your social media is collected for it. Right. On uh, the other side, you can have, you know, pro-Bernie Sanders, you know, w- whatever. Yeah. And then that world seems like it's the only world that exists, too. Like, in my world, you know, at least in terms of my digital reality, uh, which, unfortunately starts to define our absolute reality these days, which is a little bit terrifying in and of itself... Uh, but I don't see any of any of the right-wing folks in my world, except for those that troll me. Well, That's you, v- but very you few see important. Trump, oh, right? Of course. And no, you, I know. You see but what my po- he's doing. No, absolutely. But my point is that I think that there's there's extremity on both sides. And the there's a term by uh, Franco Berardi. He's an Italian theorist. And he calls it semiocapitalism, capitalism or symbolic capitalism. Mm. It's the merger of capitalist values and ideals and what's culminated through it, and technology and virtual reality. Mm. And I think this expresses with the, Trump, the rise of Trump as a reality TV star, right. and, and the way people really aren't able to consciously differentiate between reality and virtual you know, entertainment anymore. Right. It's a brilliant uh, and deep and profound notion where people are looking at the world through the lens of a TV show, and it's subconsciously inhibiting their thoughts, they don't have a sense of realism anymore. They have a sense of abstraction. They get off on, on uh, even if it does, even in their own, what pertains to them becomes lost. Uh, they, they see things as a, as a separate structure, as a separate kind of form of, um, of uh, I can't verbalize this well. They see things as a, as a separate symbology, a show. And this has really permeated people in the 21st century, with the advent of the internet, with the the use of smartphones, with the fact that our reality is starting to merge with this kind of virtual news. Yeah. It, it's, and they see their
0: own lives as show as well. Exactly. It's, they Look at me on Instagram.
2: They, exactly. My God, the yeah. Instagram and the social media phenomenon in the sense of how people portray themselves is so revealing. Yeah. I'm curious to see how people look back at the society from the future. Like, what the hell are these people doing? Assuming we made it to a more advanced state. Um, the indulgence, the, the narcissism, the the complete ADD, the dist- total waste of time. ADD, oh, my God. So yeah. And that's that's the semio capitalism. that's this mm. it's that it's not what you really are. It's what people perceive you as and your status is represented in the external. Right. And it plays into not to shift the subject too much, but it plays into that limbic system response our, our innate need to have social inclusion. Because we are, in many ways, defined by the way we relate. Right. You know, that's why I don't walk around in a Victorian gown or something. Because is that the only reason? <laughs>
0: really? Is that is
2: that what you'd really like to be wearing right now? In a powdered wig? That'd be awesome. <laughs> Even though they still do that a little bit in Britain, they so. still they still take themselves so <laughs> fucking seriously too with those powdered wigs. Yeah, unbelievable. I mean,
0: they may as well be wearing like you know clown shoes or something. It's it's, it's really funny. It's fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. I, I, I often uh, counsel, you know, like for some reason, young people are writing to me asking for life advice, yeah. which is, you know, <laughs> that's good like asking the Pope for sex advice. <laughs> uh, but um, one of the things I counsel young people to do is, is intentionally become ridiculous. You know, like, like young that. men should shave their heads. Yeah. I think every man should shave his head in his early 20s. Uh, you know, and in the military they do, of course. Right, right. Um, but I think everyone should do it, because then when you're in your you know 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever, and you start losing hair, you won't sweat it. Yeah, it's like okay, I've seen myself bald. You know, I got used to it. People still talk to me. I you know I still had friends. <laughs> People you know I still had lovers. Whatever, like deal with it, face it, yeah. you know, get through it and then leave it behind. Or, yeah, yeah. you know, walk down the street wearing a ridiculous fucking goofy clothing and just like watch people laugh at you. Very healthy. Yeah. yeah and then go home and be like, oh, people laughed at me today and nothing changed. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's important. I forget what that has
2: to do <laughs> it tra- with it. Well, it traps. Oh, the pounded wings. Yeah. Well, it also, it traps people because their identity is now so locked in especially in the virtual realm, because when something's on the Internet, it never really goes away. So right. People are terrified to, to move against the grain. I, I criticize the scientific and academic community quite a bit these days, because I don't understand how the intelligentsia of our world hasn't come to the same conclusions regarding the influence of and destructive nature of our social system. At a minimum, the ecological reality of what we're doing should be apparent to all. You can't right. have a system based on consumption and turnover, where jobs are... Are a, are a outcome of demand, and demand is an outcome of people consuming, and more the better. Right. Especially in a high productive society we have now, after the technological, uh, excuse me, the industrial revolution, you know, we we people are making so much, and with more, with less. You're familiar with Jeremy Rifkin, yeah? So he's he's did a great job, and the more he calls it zero marginal cost. And he, you know, you look at this capacity for us to create more and more with less and less, and what it's led to due to consumer culture is extremely cheap things that break, so people will buy more of them. Right. You, know, you go back and look at the technology. And fewer jobs because of robotics. Because of robotics. And all that. Yeah. And I mean that that that's a that's a sideline, but back to the ecological issues, no way you could consider this to be sustainable. Yeah. It it's no, it, it is it, the root of the ecological. It's actually. I mean, you mentioned Malthus
0: earlier, right? And uh, for people who aren't familiar with Thomas Malthus, he. Argued famously that the population grows exponentially, whereas the food supply can only grow arithmetically. Right. So, you know, you can have five acres and turn it into 10 acres, but in the meantime, you've had, uh, you know, 500,000 people who have become 250,000 people because we uh, reproduce. I, I write about him mm-hmm. uh, in Sexodon and then also in this. He was totally wrong. Yeah. I mean, it made sense in the abstract, but. He had assumed that human population had always grown at that rate. He was basing it on the population growth of of European settlers in North America. Right. You know, an empty, essentially empty, because they were killing the Indians and the disease was wiping them out right. um, environment. And when you look at actual hunter-gatherer uh, population, it remained virtually steady for hundreds of thousands of years until the Neolithic Revolution right. when it started going nuts. Right. So this idea of growth, population growth being uh, an inevitable aspect of, of human society is totally wrong. Yeah.
2: yeah. So, Absolutely. So
0: what do you think? You, well, before we get into that, I, I, okay. there was something you said earlier that I wanted to, to explore a little bit, if you're willing. Mm-hmm. That moment when you said you had an epiphany mm-hmm. and you're like, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> you know, advertising, Wall Street. investment. Yeah, yeah. What am I doing? What was that moment? What, what triggered it? How, how old were you? What was going on in
2: your life? Because I, I think a
0: lot of people never have that moment.
2: I was about 27. And it coincided with, again, that first film that I did. A very controversial performance piece. It was, I was doing all this and I came home late at night. And in the midst of these two jobs, I worked on this, this production and I didn't, It. I didn't even really, it was kind of like, kind of came out of me subconsciously. It wasn't until after it got really big that I realized the merit of the pursuit. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's like, it's as though the realization didn't come from me. It came from the power of the reaction. The fact that it resonated. so. Because detail. I was pretty pessimistic. You know, I, I had a... I had the same kind of apathy that I think a lot of people, uh, combine with the narcissism of youth that's inherent, hmm. where you, you know, like, I'm like, yeah, I, I see the problems of the world, I see this, but what am I supposed to do about it? Right. i got to concern myself with my survival, right. and so on and so forth. And it just struck, I had an empathic... Realization and it opened it up, and I realized that there has to be something deeper than just the self-interest pursuit. Hmm. And it, and yeah. So by the time, uh, so there are no drugs involved or mental no. breakdown, <laughs> auto
0: accidents. No, nothing,
2: nothing that dramatic. Death yeah. of
0: a close friend.
2: I mean, and... when if it, the when my first film hit, as again, it wasn't a film. I was never intended to be a filmmaker. It it caused such a massive reaction. I was attacked by amazing press, you know, New York Times, uh, Skeptic Society, because I talked about religion and they didn't like how I did it, even though mm. it was it was in line with a lot of. I got the enormous amount of trolling and hate sites. I, I'd I've spent at least twenty thousand dollars in lawsuits pulling websites down because they were completely propagandized in lunacy, doxing my parents' address and all this stuff. Mm. I mean, the, the contrast of all of that between the hate. And then the support, like enormous amounts of support that people came in, I, the, uh, emails, I still have a great like, majority of them, but the email account I had set up on the website, you can go, you could see an email come in roughly every minute for at least seven months. Wow. And it was lunacy, I'm not exaggerating. How many people have seen the film at this point? The before Google pulled the counter on it when it shifted because this is a time when YouTube didn't exist at least it didn't have a uh, full-length videos this is right. Google Video the very first kind of full you know uh, video site that had full right. feature-length films uh, it was about 50 million before they pulled that and that was in about that was in about nine months of time and then they got Holy really nervous shit. about all these weird videos that were up at the top of their ranking system. So they pulled it, and they, they dropped it. It's like they reset everything, and then it got moved. I, as of right now, I peg the three films at about a quarter of a billion people, but it's probably more than that because it's been translated into at least 60 languages. And it has a life of its own since it was released on the internet, and I didn't actually restrict it in copyright, at least mm-hmm. initially. I have certain restrictions now because of, of things have changed, uh, especially with people taking samples of it and making money off of it in other ways. But the expansion of it, like I'll go to countries that I've never really thought about the influence of that film, especially after a decade, and there's just this enormous number of people that were influenced by that I I never would have expected. So I really don't know. That's a wild experience. It really was. And I think that was really the revelation. It's like, well, I see I have a a role now. Ah. Sometimes I think it takes that kind of external pressure to get people to snap out, make them feel a sense of purpose that's and to reinforce what they've intuitively felt anyway.
0: Right. So you made your statement before you knew you were any sort of a spokesman.
2: Pretty much. I would have gone right yeah. back to my b- bizarre world uh, after that production huh. if it wasn't for the impact that it had.
0: And were you in uh were you married or a relationship or anything?
2: I was at girlfriends. Yeah. But no, nothing nothing like that. But you didn't have like a partner who was like, you not know, really, no. not at that exact point in time. Reflecting no. it. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's
0: interesting. I mean, you're, you're, really lucky that happened you know so many people get into these worlds where it's like yeah this isn't really my world but what else am I going to do and it's too late to change and next thing you know life's gone by and you're a fucking advertising
2: executive yeah right well I could argue that I'm still out of out of water on it it's not natural to me I'm very introspective as an introvert so I for public speaking and like has taken a lot for mm. me to go around and give talks, and you do it a lot, though, right? You're doing a lot of podcasts and TV. Right shows now, with the book, I'm trying my best, you know, to to give some oomph because I have to, you know, promote it, and and I really believe it. It took a lot of work, but even before that, I'd be invited to you know places to talk about the films, and it, it was just very difficult. Yeah, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't natural at all. Well, you're good at it. I hope so. You're very articulate. I hope I've gotten better.
0: Yeah, um, the the films. You edit the films, and yeah, I did everything. You did everything. Yeah, even the music. Really well done. Oh, thanks. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It seems it's like anything you create. You look at it ten years later, you're like, eh. Yeah. You don't want to. <laughs> but I'm in production yeah. now with another trilogy. It's a live action one that takes this stuff. I just structure. watched the trailer this morning. Oh, okay. What's it
0: called? Inner Reflections. Inner Reflections. It's yeah. really well done. Oh, thank the, you. The trailer's fucking terrifying. <laughs> It's it's uh, got sort of a matrixy vibe yeah. to it, and
2: it's a mixed genre piece. So the trailer's a little misleading. It's, uh, it starts. It feels like a
0: documentary at first, and then suddenly there's a character introduced. Yep. It's sort it of a, a
2: story. Um, yeah, the the sort of terrorist uh, hacker. Uh, I'm building John on Taylor, I think. Right. I'm building on memes of Anonymous and WikiLeaks. Anonymous, yeah. And I, I, I anticipate in the future, and this is one of the. the, the 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 trajectories that we should all be worried about, well, two of them, mercy of the ecological decline, uh, climate change and so on. Uh, Even even if climate change wasn't the focus, there's so many other problems at hand that need to be rectified. I mean, we'll have more plastic in the ocean by, by 2050 than fish at the yeah. right? Yeah. But then there's the social destabilization factor. You know, what's going to happen when, when, when people that in their basement have nanotechnology capacities? Because yeah. that's more with less phenomenon. I'm going back to Jeremy Rifkin. Right. Things are just going to get smaller and more powerful. Right. And if you have a, a society that's increasingly angry, you have pockets of poverty, which mm-hmm. by probability on a certain level, you will have statistically people that go off the deep end. Yeah. Um, well, you know, we, we can argue uh, moral issue of that as people like to do with terrorism and so on. Go but off the deep end. You're saying mentally, or you're talking. Well, I mean, about where they don't care anymore. Where they are willing to lose. They're willing to harm. Exactly. They're willing to harm the world. Yeah. And so the, well, we and already I, have those people. We, we have do millions. Absolutely. of Absolutely. But yeah. what's going to happen when the technology is at their fingertips to do destruction, have capacities of destruction that we've never had before? Right. So that's a race yeah. against Suit, time. Suitcase nukes. Even beyond that though. Yeah. Yeah, that's been a threat yeah. for a long time. But, Bioterror. Right. Yeah. What we see now is actually quite modest. In fact, I'm really quite surprised we yeah. haven't seen more extremity on so a level of that technology. Yeah. yeah. So the film builds on a positive version of that where in the future, and I think I think there's some merit to this, not just in the fictional reality of the film, but where there's a there's a there's a hacktivist group for good. Mm-hmm. And they've become so powerful. They've developed the ability to actually fight against the establishment, the empires and the pentagons and so on, the the, the preservers of the status quo. But they've become so, so powerful with their technology that they're actually able to change the world as an opposition force. Yeah. And I like that idea. Not to say I advocate that, but I think it gives people perspective. Because I really don't believe the revolutions of the future will happen from the political establishment as, as it exists. I think it will happen from a grassroots Campaign of people that finally realize the potentials, as I talked about in the last chapter of the book, and and through whatever mechanisms required, I'm not sure what that will be, but I don't, it won't be through referendums. Yeah. Um, they will start to recreate society, and those that wish to join them, well, then that starts the new world and the new the new phenomenon. And yeah, I hope that something like that occurs because I I really, as I said before, don't believe that the political establishment has it in it. And even if you get elected into those positions, even if Bernie Sanders, for example, was elected, there's such a massive pushback against what the, the logic of the system is yeah. that you're, you're so deeply limited. At a minimum, he would have helped some of the social public health stuff, but at, at complete failure of anything that deals with the ecological decline. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I, You know, I, I kind of feel with politics... You know, the Frank Zappa quote, Uh politics is the entertainment division of the military industrial complex. (laughs) That's good. Um, I just feel like, you know, it's like we're in a self-driving bus arguing at who gets to sit in the driver's seat. Yeah. It's it's headed over the cliff. I I don't, I mean, I try to be optimistic uh, for my own mental health, but if I had to, you know, if I were a day trader and I had to, you know, calculate what I think (laughs) the odds are,
2: so you think They're it's improbable,
0: good. and I, I, there's a certain level of me that thinks that, too. Well, you, you know, it, you know, we'd have to define what it is in this case, but... Uh, well, a sustainable, socially just world that... I, I don't think that's improbable, but I think it's improbable that we will get there by making good decisions. Uh, I think we'll get there by having, you know, the ship is already hitting the fan. Yeah. And we'll come out on the other side of it, hopefully having learned from the, you know, global collapse and, you know, whatever. I I think we're going to go through a a serious crisis. You ever, there's a great essay published a few years ago in uh, E.ON magazine online, um, You know, I'm very interested in how evolutionary theory has been co-opted by capitalism to justify, you know, and the Neo Hobbesian worldview is at the heart of both of those and Malthus, Malthus, of course. Malthus was the world's first economist. It was. Yeah. yeah. So, you Isn't know, the, the there you e- go. The British East
2: India Company. Yeah. Which right. is spooky enough exactly. considering that was the arm of colonialism. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of interesting convergence. So you can see there. how his logic would easily justify the colonial, you know,
0: expression. It, and it also justified the incredible economic disparities. Yep. And And I argue that's the power of the argument. The argument itself falls apart the minute you start looking at data. But the sort of seeming mathematical ine- inevitability of it combined with its great utility in justifying the the economic disparity so the once you grasp the argument you can say well well then the poor will always be with us mm-hmm. you know it doesn't make <laughs> sense if if we if we help these people they're just going to Reproduce, and okay. then we'll have the same problem we had before. So there's no—you're not actually being
2: compassionate by helping poor people. You should just—they're always going to be there. Yeah, there's that great Malthus quote where he—I he, <laughs> don't know if you've read that. I can't remember. I can't state it verbatim, but he actually goes the reverse. He's like we should push the poor near the swamps, uh, and he so be he, he, and he berates the well-meaning yeah. uh, men, but but ignorant men that try right. to help reduce this problem. Um, and you know who the
0: well-meaning but ignorant man was that he was who? had in mind? Uh, his father. Really? Yeah, there's a very deep sort of Oedipal thing going on. Really? Because his father uh was good friends with um uh Goodwin, I think his name was, who was an extreme progressive.
2: I remember Goodwin, yeah. He was yeah. socialist more or less. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And
0: and he argued that at that point and we're talking what early 1800s mm-hmm. I believe, mm-hmm. um he he used to come over to the house and, and uh, Malthus' father and Goodwin would sit at the table and debate and young Thomas would sit there and join in. And so, like a lot of young people, he defined himself against his father and against his father's ideas. Interesting. But Goodwin was arguing uh, for equal rights for women. Mm-hmm. This is like 1812 yeah. or
2: something. I remember something. reading his work a long time ago.
0: Yeah. He also, his daughter was... Uh, the author of uh, Frankenstein. Oh, really? Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley. Yeah. And uh, he was also arguing for redistribution of wealth, essentially what we're calling universal basic income at this point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so he was this very progressive guy, yeah. very close with Malthus's father. So young Thomas, of course, had to like say, Dad, you're wrong, and here's why. Prove you wrong. <laughs> and his father encouraged him to write an essay explaining his ideas and Tom, Malthus was like in his early 20s I
2: yeah. think, when he wrote that. The population essay. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, I didn't know that at all. Interesting, interesting.
0: Yeah, so it all gets, so, so Darwinism gets co-opted oh, yes. into this argument like, oh look, nature, it's all red, you know, bloody red in tooth and claw. It's all competition. That's how species adapt and advance by killing one another. Of Which course. is nonsense. Yeah, it's nonsense. Yeah. Darwin would say it was nonsense. He did say it was nonsense. Yeah. But, again, the utility of the argument is more important than the, the integrity
2: of the argument. True. Yeah. yeah. So. And there you have the whole psychological underpinnings of modern philosophy. So Adam Smith and John Locke took all that stuff and, and, yeah. and, and well, I think... Actually, Locke was before Darwin. So although, Adam although
0: Adam Smith also wrote about cooperation being more important than competition and how it hurts us to see there's another mixed, person There's mixed suffer. messages in there. Well, there he wrote two major essays, right? There was... Uh, Wealth of Nations. Wealth of Nations. Then it was that but, second but one, yeah. The, the, that's where he introduced... The other one that's much more about the
2: cooperation and... and which is where he introduced um, the invisible hand uh, as well. I remember that. Yeah, Because yeah, yeah. he mentions it only t- more times in the other essay. But yeah. Yeah. But he, he, Smith wasn't uh, a nefarious figure whatsoever, but it, it represents a point in time. And the idea of the invisible hand has been, I guess you could say... Exaggerated. <laughs> yeah. Because in the extremity of it, you have this quaint idea of self regulation in the system, which implies voluntary exchange and that things work out if people act on their own self interest. It sounds democratic. But then it got turned into what's now neoliberalism. Right. So now the whole world must abide by, and of course, this is the general philosophy of the World Trade Organization, right. uh, the IMF, the World Bank. Pretty much you are a neoliberal entity, and if you're not, then, well, you're going to see the wrath of the rest of the neoliberal world because yeah. you must be a dictator. You know, you, you, you see this rhetoric from from Cuba to Iran to, to Venezuela. Uh, it's really unfortunate on that macro level that those societies that, to whatever dis- discredit they deserve, still have tried to do something a little bit different. And we've been weeding this out ever since the fall of the Soviet Union. Mm. Suddenly the hegemony of the capitalist structure prevailed even though it was really done through trem- tremendous sabotage against the Soviet Union. You know, uh, the mythology of, uh, of, of communism as it existed historically is ever pervasive and, and completely quite wrong when it comes to Western education.
0: Hmm. What, you, what would you say is wrong? What are the salient points that we get wrong?
2: There, there are problems in communism. Communism existed in, in t- as an attempt to have, have a semi-autocratic control uh, in a planned economy But people still used money and they still had trade with the external. So, if you restrict trade, just like we restricted trade with Cuba, you know, the standard operating procedure of the embargo, and you start to mess with an entire society and not allow them to import, or you, then you are going to destabilize internally. Hmm. And then there's the propaganda, of course, of all the death tolls, of the, the Black Book of Communism, this big held-up, you know, pro-capitalist book that says 100 million people died due to communism. They don't talk about that. Largely, it was due to famines. And those famines are consequential of the global economy and the global the global issues that were happening between the West and the Soviet Union. In other mm-hmm. words, there are other factors that were creating the death tolls. Right. Not to mention that death toll is largely exaggerated. I want to throw this out there because I get this argument all the time with people that get these polarized ideas between communism and capitalism, and they can't see any nuance between the two. In capitalism, the, the, the signature attribute is economic inequality, right? That is the birth of classism and in, right. in the Neolithic Revolution. Right. So you didn't have that before, and consequentially, you have poverty and socio inequality. And in, and this is done by an analysis, um, uh, Kohler and Alcott, if I remember their names being pronounced correctly, uh, in the 1970s, they analyzed what death tolls, based on uh, average lifespan, were being created through inequality, unnecessarily so and they estimated 18 million people die. This is a long time ago, but the statistic still holds true. I did a, a recent analysis of it. 18 million people, conservatively speaking, die because of unnecessary condition due to what's called structural violence. It was done through the Gandhi Institute. Um, also another figure is Johann Goldtung, He's another one that presented this information. So 18 million people die every year effectively due to the inequality generated by the capitalist structure which means that in less than six years more people die because of capitalism than the entire century of communism Hmm. and i think people i don't state that to support communism i state that to show the the crazy relativity that people have you know people think of violence they think of a gun pointed to your head right but there's a Deeper, much more insidious form of violence, in addition to structure, exactly. The chain reactions. We're all pulling these levers on a giant machine. Yeah. And we don't realize that our little self-interested mechanisms are supporting the system that's putting out an exhaust right. of death and destruction, <laughs> and you know, poverty yeah. said it. Yeah. Excuse me, Gandhi said it. The best poverty is the worst form of violence. Right, and that can't be understated.
0: So you must have some interesting ideas about the arguments Stephen Pinker advances. In, Which ones? Well, the the in the. Better angels of our nature. Mm-hmm. I think his last book about uh, how we live at the most in the most peaceful era in you know the existence of species. You know, it's you you know funny. Um,
2: yeah, he. Uh, I I didn't read that book, but I did read um, the blank slate. The blank slate. Mm-hmm. And Pinker is a unique character. There's some things I agree with. Some things feel ideologically driven to me. Woo. Yeah, um, I had conversation with some other. Uh, scientists about him. But anyway, so if, if you want to say we're in the most peaceful period of society, you have to ignore effectively all structural violence. As he does. And, you know, it's even more interesting. I read an article that said that that book effectively, because of the recent surge of deaths and the genocide and the refugee crisis and what's been happening over the course of the past uh, I guess he wrote that book like five years ago. Yeah. Since that time, he someone wrote that actually it's debunked now, statistically. Just even using his statistical framework. Yeah, there's no longer yeah. in the most peaceful society. Yeah. And even what makes the worst to me, I call them techno-capitalist apologists broadly. These are the folks that see this gain saying, they describe this gain saying over the course of time. And they tend to be of a, you know academically elite class, or they have a lot of a lot of wealth and influence and have great stature. And even folks like Jeremy Rifkin and Ray Kurzweil and Peter Diamandis and a lot of the technologist guys in Singularity or other folks that I could list, they have this tendency to not see the central problem, which is a power system that doesn't care, that will continue to preserve itself at the expense of the general population. And because of that, all trajectories are are basically negative right now. There's a long-term progressive trajectory. That's great. But all the trajectories within this final little moment are all going down? Yeah, you have you have all life support systems in decline. Yeah, you have a growing refugee crisis that's 65 million. That there's no resolution of that in sight, which will definitely spiral into other problems. You know, resulting in that, you have this new uh, isolationism that is a terrible sign towards fascism, so such as Trump wanting to build a wall, uh, the Brexit. You know, you, you have all of these things that are starting to pile in there that lead to two conclusions, especially with the withdrawal of the Paris Accord, that there's really no momentum towards any of these things being resolved in the immediate future without something very dramatic happening. Like, everything's in in retrograde. Yeah,
0: and and you're still working within the presumption that they could be solved. You know, the thing about points of no return is that sometimes you pass them.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that. You
0: know, But nobody wants to talk that way. I, guess, I, I love how everyone's like this argument of like, well, I have to be an optimist because I <laughs> have kids. Like, that's not rational. That's not rational, no. You don't have to be well, an optimist. Well, here's the way
2: I see it then. I don't see, I see collapse uh, occurring on multiple levels. And I also see the potential for, if, the, if there was a galvanized community for change. But I think what's most probable is you're gonna have the continual collapse. I don't believe in a global collapse because it's not perceivable. So people, I talk to people like, well, we gotta wait for something really bad to happen and everyone will wake up. I don't think people really work that way. I mean, there are those pressures that will change people, there are shock events. But I think that when it comes to the global phenomenon, like, how many more? We already have close to a billion people starving, again, 65 million refugees. Yeah. What else, what extremity? Right. What about 3 billion? Do people really going to care in the West? What's
0: it going to take? Yeah. Well, you know, I always thought, like, we need a the hurricane to hit DC and sort of like, you know, right. oh, shit, that's real. Sure. But it hit New York, you know, the super storm, Storm Sandy or whatever it was. Right, right, right. Like, how many perfect fucking storms do we need to have? Sure. It, you know, they're all perfect at this point. Sebastian Younger must feel weird about that, you Who? know. Sir? Sebastian Junger. he he invented the phrase "the perfect storm." Oh, he, did, he wrote okay. the, the book about it, right, 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 And now it's everywhere. Like you know, yeah. it's, it's weird to see it.
2: So my point being is, yeah. is there's no real moment of realization. Except for an educational requirement to get people, again, why the book was written to get people to understand that there is a direction, if there is a galvanized community to move forward, there's a way, there's a place to go. There is, there is right. hope. Yeah. Now, probabilistically, whether we get there, I'd say the probabilities are against us. Mm-hmm. I say, my catchphrase is, the kind of change that's required will happen one way or another. It just depends on how much suffering it has to incur well, before that,
0: it does. That's what I was saying earlier. Yeah, I right. think we, as a species, will get to a sustainable place. But there might be fifty thousand of us, yeah, and it might be on a planet that's you know eighty percent uninhabitable yeah but um anyway, I, I was referring to this essay earlier I, I, I we got sidetracked, which is great this whole the whole point of this podcast is to get sidetracked Good. Um, but I think it it would be a useful thing for you as a as a metaphor um, the guy talks about uh I think the essay is called The Selfish Meme Must Die or something, or The Selfish Gene Must Die. And he, he sort of gets into the, the Dawkins selfish gene thing, which, of course, is hugely ideologically driven. It's not accurate, scientifically speaking, but right, it's right. very useful for capitalists to think about. And, right. Uh, anyway, he, uh, he talks about how he was at a conference, and he just happened to walk to this to um, this guy who was talking about locusts. And he was talking about a, a species of locust that's in North Africa. That's the sort of biblical plague of locust, sure. locust, yeah, right? Locust. And um, turns out that this locust begins life as a grasshopper, and many of them will live and die as grasshoppers. And grasshoppers are dispersed; they live. People have heard me talk about this before, so I'll try to boil it down. But they live independently. They're, they're chill, they don't attack each other, whatever. Right. Then the rains come, there's lots of green, and the population expands rapidly. Then the rains stop, the green starts to uh, reduce, 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 so the population density of these grasshoppers increases, okay. and it gets to a point where the population density triggers dormant genes. Wow. And now the individual grasshoppers transform into locusts. Not over generations. One, it's like a Mr. Jekyll or wow. Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing. Fascinating. And so their front legs get shorter, their back legs get longer, their coloration changes, their head changes shape, and they become very aggressive. They start attacking each other, they become cannibalistic, and then they start to swarm.
2: That's amazing. So no the idea.
0: swarms are millions of these locusts trying to bite the one in front and right. the one behind trying. Trying to bite you. Right. It's fucking capitalism. <laughs> man. It's this hyper-competitive.
2: That's a great analogy.
0: Yeah. And they swarm across North Africa. They eat everything. Right. And then when nothing's left, 95% of them die. Oh. The 5% that are left go back to being
2: grasshoppers. Do they really? Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I had no idea. So that's, that, that is that's, that's my
0: vision yeah. <laughs> of the future, that there will be some grasshoppers, but it's going to take a giant die off. Unfortunately, I. I mean, my thing is, we are at this. When I'm trying to be hopeful, right? And I think maybe you and I converge on this a little bit. I'm trying to be hopeful. I say, look, we're at this moment where we have a a world brain for the first time. This internet. I mean, this is so weird that you and I can have this conversation. We can say anything we want, and then I push a few buttons, and a hundred thousand people can listen to it, or a million, or you know, whatever. But at least a hundred thousand will, right? Sure. Sure. Um, and it's archived forever, it's freely accessible, there's no password, there's no, you don't have to be white, you don't have to be a man, right, you don't right. have to. so. That's incredible. Yeah, that's an incredible moment in human history, it's it never is. existed before. No. And we also have technology for creating uh, passive energy, we have the technology for controlling population without killing anybody. Right, we we can get vasectomies. We can you know there's all
2: sorts of birth control. We can also change the precondition, as you pointed out earlier, where if you actually get people out of poverty, their numbers now lower in contrast to the Malthusian view.
0: Well, and if you, I mean, my dream is to try to combine population control with universal basic income, mm-hmm. because so many people, as you know, have kids as a way to sort of uh, provide for them in their old age. Sure. If you're like, look, everybody, everybody in the world is going to get the equivalent of $1,000 a month or 2000 a month in your local economy forever, you don't need to have a bunch of kids, True. right? Yeah. And in fact, the fewer kids you have, the more money you'll get. That's a good incentive So build well. an incentive in like, yeah. hey, you didn't have any kids. You're doing a good thing for the
2: planet. Here's an extra 500 bucks a month. Yeah.
0: Well, people are going to stop having kids. Yeah,
2: that would be a great incentive. Absolutely. Yeah. You're right. That touches upon a lot of sensitive issues. You know, I'm at an age now where I see all my friends having kids and I ask them, so why? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and their, their response generally is they have that biological need. I know that in the if females seem to have the biological clock that seems to be relatively well established. Do you agree with that? That there's a general gravitation as women mature that they they gravitate towards wanting to have kids, or is that more of a cultural issue? Do you think?
0: I I mean I'm not a woman I I can't speak to that experience. But there's been some studies I thought. I, like I have plenty of women friends who say never never happened. Me too.
2: But at the same time I I know.
0: But but let's look at another. Let's look at it you know from my the way I look at things right. So I look at that, I say, okay, wait. Now, we're calling that a biological impulse to have children. What if that's a biological impulse to be nurturant hmm. and to, to be around children? What if it does, it's not about having children. And I think that's pretty, I, I did an interview one time with a woman um, and we were. I, I was saying something about how hunter-gatherer, Paternity is, you know, we assume it's sort of built into the evolutionary psychology view that men are very concerned with paternity, and so they would only share resources with a woman who's only having sex with them, and it's this whole, you know, the basis of this argument, which I found in my research to be totally baseless. Okay. Okay. and I was talking about that with her, and there, like, there are societies in the Amazon who believe that a fetus is literally made of accumulated semen. That's right.
2: I remember that from a TED talk. Yeah. yeah.
0: So the, so like, the idea that one man, one sex act could create a baby is not well established. Sure. Right. Sure. Anyway, uh, so I was talking about this, and 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 talking about how in hunter-gatherer societies, uh, and and other societies, even agrarian societies, often. Paternal responsibility for a child is not biologically determined. It's the mother's brother who has to take care of the child, or it's a clan system where, oh, you're in the otter clan. Well, that means I'm going to take care of you. Right. And so th- this assumption that the nuclear family is this sort of essential unit of human uh, social organization is totally yeah. without basis. Um, anyway, she said, you know, I just, I adopted a kid two years ago. And I, I had my own, I had a uh, child biologically a couple of years before that. And I can tell you, there's no difference. Yeah. There's no difference. I held that baby. I love that baby just as much as the one that came out of my body. There's no difference. Sure. So the biological clock, I might look at it and say, we evolved in small hunter-gatherer bands where if there's a baby everyone's taking care of i feel i see a baby i want to pick him up and Mm -hmm. play with him and hold him and protect him and teach him and it's not my baby so why do i feel that yeah so i i would argue that it's not a biological clock i would argue that that women and men but women to a greater extent want to be around kids want to help kids want to protect them want to feed them want to you know and, it, and the only way to do that in this world is to have your own, right? because mm-hmm. we live in these weird fragmented units. It's true.
2: It's lack of tribalness. Yeah. A yeah. l- lack of tribal community. Well, so, so, you know, I, then I asked them, and I guess that's where that, I, I agree with that. I think there's the nurturing tendency, there's that need for right. just that, as right. opposed to something that you own or a child. I mean, but I cat do, ladies. Why, why do they have 20 cats? Yeah, it's true. You yeah. Know? We're pet owners in general. I think yeah, exactly. Sort of, yeah. Is, there's probably some truth to the fact that people that don't have kids tend to get pets. You're my baby.
3: <laughs> oh my little baby.
2: Oh. But I will say that <laughs> there is something to say about... There's something about culture that people develop an emptiness in this culture. Yeah. And I think that they have to fill that void. And I think right. once they reach this kind of age, children seem to be something that fills it. And children, I'm not sure if that's money. Nec- money, yeah. You know? I'm not sure if that's necessarily healthy. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's a it's a difficult subject yeah you know? well I think uh, what I've seen and this this relates back to the whole economic
0: argument that we began this conversation around i I have seen a lot of people whose lives are essentially meaningless and they're smart enough to know that what they're doing is bullshit. Mm-hmm. they're you know, managing fucking office buildings or whatever it is, you know, at best is meaningless at worst is destructive and horrible degrading. And how do they make it meaningful? Have kids. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I do this because I'm taking care of this kid. Yeah. This kid's going to change the world. This kid's going to be great. And I have to pay for college so he can, you know, become... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Come on, man. This is all, You're just offloading all your own personal responsibility onto this poor little kid who yeah. doesn't... And also, whoever said that not existing is worse than existing? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's not like by not having a kid, you're killing a kid. Dude,
2: well, I, not, I, make the, I make the argument in the book, you know, we have a moral debate of abortion. Yeah. You could say, you know, in, the, in isolated terms, okay, well, if you don't believe that people should be killed and you want to conceive of the human life from, from fertilization to death, yeah. then clearly you have a continuum, and where you draw that line is very subjective. Right. Obviously, birth creates a social reality for the child, and as we've learned about ourselves, we are deeply social, yeah, yeah. and it creates an extension of the individual. So obviously, the, it has to start from that point, but... But it, it's not obvious. It's not obvious, no. It's a, it's a moral decision. It's a moral view. I, I, would, I agree with that. And but, it, it, but there is a, there is there are, yeah. uh, there are factors yeah. which make the argument stronger, I'll put it that way. Right. But my, my central point beyond that was... What if you had a child, you know, you're born into poverty, again, a low socioeconomic status, born into a family that can't support the child. They're in a state that doesn't allow abortion. And then that breeds a child full of neurotic tendencies, neuroses that eventually harms other people in adulthood. So where does the moral... De- defense come at that point, yeah, and that's what no one talks about in this sort of myopic view yeah. of of that subject. Particularly. Well, see, I would argue that
0: that again that gets back to my whole sort of mega meta mm-hmm. m- uh, organism thing. I would argue that that kid is good for the m- the mega organism. Uh-huh. it's not good for us because as you say that kid's going to cause damage Whatever, Zero but what's it do it, it it reduces labor rate because you've got the excess labor pool of all these uneducated poor it creates uh, war you've, you've got plenty of soldiers cannon fodder yes send them off to war they, their lives are meaningless they have no options yeah. they're looking for someone they're angry yep. they're sexually frustrated there's a great connection between sexual frustration and violence sure um so it it serves the purpose of the super organism. It doesn't, yeah, yeah. serve the yeah. purpose of the society necessarily. Right. But the the thing I was going to say about that whole abortion and and birth thing that's uh, I find fascinating, because I get into this with debunking the notion that uh, we've doubled the human lifespan.
2: Okay.
0: Yeah, right. You know, which still is hugely popular yeah. notion. Sure. And anytime I talk to people, you know, questioning the notion of progress, the first thing they'll come out with is like, "Come on, dude! You know, we're not dying from fucking cholera anymore. You know, like blah, 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 antibiotics." And yeah, I have to explain to it's them like, to "Those are band aids over wounds we've caused ourselves with sure. civilization," and this idea that we're living twice as long. Um, yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with it, but it's it's basically. Uh, it's misinformation it is based on a, a misunderstanding of archaeological reports um, mm-hmm. because of dental eruption stops at 35, and so you can't tell age of death beyond 35. Because and so, but archaeologists understand that just means 35 up to whatever. Right. But the journalists were like, "Oh, look, nobody was over 35." Mm-hmm. Again, you know. Hey, more more stuff to support our system. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you don't look at it, but the but the, my other point was. Infant mortality is a big part of those calculations as well. so they find a bunch of dead infants, and, and it's true hunter-gatherers a lot infants die about 50 yeah. percent of infants die or children die before the age of 10. Right. which obviously is way higher than, than in our world. definitely. Um, but a lot of those infant deaths were infanticide, really. Yeah, because population control. You, they didn't. If twins were born, most hunter gatherers they won't raise twins. Interesting. Because there's just not enough food and time and whatever, and they'll right. they'll let one die. Um, and if a child's born with any sort of uh, ailment, mm-hmm. any sort of well, my microphone just fell. So oh. Any sort of um, you know physiological deformity or whatever, right? They'll let the child die. Yeah. Um, and they don't believe most hunter gatherers don't believe an infant is a person in fact they most hunter gatherers don't believe uh, an infant becomes a person until they can speak interesting so letting an infant die for them is essentially abortion Yeah. yeah but when we calculate our own longevity we don't include abortions right and millions of kids are getting abor- kids, whatever, that's whatever you want to call them. That's an excellent point. In China and India, just because they're girls, yeah, for right, example, right. you know. But certainly, if there are physical deformities, you know, a lot of those kids are being not born. Yeah. So it's statistically, it's just a totally dishonest.
2: Yeah, conversation. I hear that statistically. Oh, we've reduced child mortality by. X percent, and that must be such a great sign of our progress.
0: Yeah, although it's
2: going the wrong way. Even if it were true in what this, yeah, even if it were true in the in the stats that we see. Is that really the ultimate sign of progress as a civilization? I mean, infant mortality, and I go back, going back to my argument of what actually defines a person. Right. What is it? What are, I mean, we we are a collection of cells. We go through the biological process, but that doesn't really make us human as far as I'm concerned. It has to be a social relationship. I mean, metaphorically human. It has to be, you have to be identified. You have to be identified by your parents and by your Mm. tribe. And I think to me, that's where, that's why we generally intuitively don't honor death, at least you know, and you, you have capital punishment and war and all these loopholes. But generally speaking, we outlaw people murdering each other because we know that there's a social relationship and we know that that will spark other negative effects. Hmm. You know, you have retributive murders. Right. You know, there's a destabilizing force when you have a society that's willing to kill itself. Right. And I think that is a kind of, uh, that's not talked about enough in this kind of basic utility of stability of a society. Yeah. You know what I mean? So the moral arguments, I think, fall flat. Uh, in a lot of ways, people need to think more in terms of, of what what works and what doesn't in terms of the goals of a society. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, if you want to, you don't want to live in a warfare society or a gangland society because it just fuels more gangland activity right. and warfare. Right. So, hence, we create rules and laws that organize around that, and we create moral bullshit to try and convince us, I say we in the sense of this sort of intuition that we've generated. Yeah to convince us that we, it's a moral issue. And I think that detracts from the logic of it. You now, I often, you know, ethics and morality are important, I think, in, to, to communicate to kids and people just so they have a fundamental basis, but that knowledge has to have its foundation in something that actually works hmm. and something that actually has utility in the sense that it's functional. It can't yeah. just be a whimsical idea of what's right, right and wrong. Right. And it's too bad that we still have the religious dogmas and things like that that impose these these moral overarching yeah. you know, terms that no we, one even knows what they're doing. And they work against us. In, oh, like, yeah. For
0: example, the, the religious strictures against sexual expression. Sure. You know, as I said earlier, there is an established connection between sexual frustration and violence. Pedophile priests. Pedophile priests, fucking Al-Qaeda and and ISIS, you know, the whole uh, Islamic uh, jihad. Those guys aren't getting laid, and they're being told that in
2: heaven you're going to have all these virgins. (laughs) What a fucking Uh, amazingly uh, misogynistic idea. Yeah. A thousand virgins or whatever. Yeah. Uh, Stunning. Yeah, stunning. Do you know the?
0: You know who Robert Sopolsky is? Oh, of course. I, I interviewed him for my third film. Oh yeah, I quote him in the book too. He's great. He's, He's great. great. Do you know his his story about the the baboons who got sick? I do.
2: That, yeah, that's an excellent study.
0: Yeah, and it really kind of makes me hopeful. That You know, that's as far as looking for shreds of hope. Absolutely. That,
2: you know, if, if a, in a single generation, they can change their behavior. Right. Because the alphas were died off, for those that are listening. Yeah. There's a story of the alphas that were very aggressive, naturally, in a baboon troop. And they died off due to an accident. And then what happened, because that alpha pressure wasn't there, everyone became far more chilled. egalitarian, yeah. yeah, and what I love best about that yeah. is that when new, the new males came in, they were yeah. acclimated, exactly. now if they can do that, yeah, then the power of culture, the power of our prefrontal cortex should be able to kick in here, yeah. it's something that, you know, our, our primate brethren don't have the option of as much, yeah, to be conscious, um, you think that we could do a whole lot better now, you uh, know about the Fermi paradox, no, um,
0: so, Enrico Fermi, one of the physicists who worked on the Manhattan Project, okay. Uh, was hanging out with some other super genius friends having lunch, and uh, they were talking about the possibility of there being uh, extraterrestrial life. Mm-hmm. And so. You know he these are like you know five nobel prize winners having lunch right so he's like well okay wait how many you know stars in the galaxy and how many of those stars are of the proper type that there could be orbiting planets and how many of those uh you know statistically what's the probability of of those of a planet being in the right sort of margin of temperature, so there could be water on the planet. We know there's ice floating around in space, so if they've existed long enough, that ice is going to accumulate. Um, So sort of doing that statistical analysis, he came up with some incredibly large number of planets where life could have originated. That's right. I remember this now. And then he says, uh, where is everyone? (laughs) Right? Like, we know... If there are 700 trillion planets where life could have originated, mm-hmm. there's no reason to think this is the only one where it happened, sure. right? That right, right. That's ridiculous. Occam's razor would never go there. Right. So you say, well, it's happened. Let's say it's happened on half of them already, right? Let's say we're sort of statistically in the middle. So that means that there are a lot of them that have existed for hundreds of millions of years. So they're far more advanced than us. Where the fuck are they? <laughs> and... So the answer, you mentioned Elon Musk earlier, he's written about this and, and Bill Gates and uh, Stephen Hawking. and the, the answer that most people have come up with is that there's what they call the great filter, which is that there's a point where societies, uh, civilizations, and you talk about this explicitly in your work, where the the technological capabilities are far beyond the moral and social maturity. maturity, right. So it's like giving a machine gun to a chimpanzee eventually he's going to shoot everybody Great. right? right. Uh, and so you, these societies reach that point they wipe themselves out and that's why yeah. we haven't heard from anyone because there's like almost like a Malthusian thing there's this built in Difference between technological advancement—you could say it advances, you know, exponentially—and the moral thing, which advances or arithmetically—and so you just get this disjuncture, and and it wipes out. Yep. So, in in the context of this this book I'm I'm working on now, I I've come to this idea that that's probably true in many cases, but there's another option, which is, and and you sort of gestured toward it earlier. You know uh, Joseph Campbell? Oh, yeah. So Joseph Cam- Campbell's big idea was that every society's origin myth is essentially the same story. The prodigal son or whatever the hero's journey, he calls it, where right. he, the the person goes out, leaves their society, leaves the thing they know. They go out and they learn all these lessons and have all these challenges. And then at the end, they return home, as T.S. Eliot said, the end of all our travel, all our Explorations will be to return to where we began and know the place for the first time. Got it. Right? So I put all these things together, and my idea is the societies that don't wipe themselves out reach a point where they say the best place for us to be is here, where we started, Hmm. not out there. Yeah, yeah. And there's nothing we need out there. What we need is simply. To take care of this place, yeah. because every organism is going to thrive best in the place in the context that gave rise to it. Sure, a cactus wants to be in the desert, an orchid wants to be in the jungle. You take oh, a we'd cactus, to work and so pick-
2: hard to replicate this environment on another planet uh,
0: impo- why even bother
2: I'm glad why you brought bother? that up I'm so glad you brought- I, I identify with Hawking because in his in his cynicism he's like well we gotta get the hell out of here because we're not gonna survive otherwise so he's projecting that the species will destroy itself and yeah. as they get off will be surviving but then there's the musks and such that want to terraform yeah. and, th- and that's where I'm like wow man why can't we use these resources and energy and science focus on saving what we have. Right. I, I, I do cringe when I hear uh, people wanting to do all these experimental, exploratory Cause things. Because it's just run faster. It it's is. It's just,
0: you know, instead of turning and facing not, the
2: fucking monster, exactly.
0: we're just gonna, learning to run faster and faster and it's like, it, we're
2: never going to get away. Especially in a, in a class-based society. You know, and again, I follow all the, the fruits of technology and people that are so overly optimistic in certain ways, such as, you know, genetic engineering and we will be able to help yeah. kids. And, but who's going to have those options? Yeah. The wealthy are. Yeah. It's the wealthy that will go to terraformed Mars. It's the wealthy that will be able to live for another hundred years if that's possible. And that's frightening because it's, it creates, again, that elitist separation that can only cause conflict. I mean, we think class is bad now. Imagine when there are people walking around that have certain biological advantages because they could afford to alter themselves in utero. I find that terrifying. And yet, the, yet the academic intelligentsia and the pro-technologist folks never touch upon that. Yeah. That's t- that you can't, yeah. We can't expect stability to occur in, in this type of class structures. It has to be separated. It has to be removed. One way or another, people have to realize that socioeconomic inequality, as I state in the book, is the most destructive force in human society right now. And I separate that a little bit from the ecological, which most focus on, because the end result of the ecological crisis will be more socioeconomic inequality. Hmm. Whether it's the poor of the world getting poorer, whether it's more tropical diseases down south... It's those are the ones that suffer from all of this first pushing more refugees more violence more terrorism and who are they going to focus on where all the concentration of wealth and power is and it just everything points to instability the sooner the better (laughs) well Unfortunately, you know, what is it about the fact that people are going into—and this is—I'm being cynical and sarcastic. But you see very little aggression to go to the power establishment directly or the elitist business class. Well, I was going to ask you followers. earlier,
0: what do you think of the Unabomber? Have you read his manifesto?
2: <laughs> Not read his manifesto, no. It makes a lot of sense, man. Does it really? Well, I bet you a lot of these guys that have philosophical underpinnings that finally rebel have kernels of truth to it there's a great book you should read by Federico Berardi it's called Heroes Mm. and it's it's uh, Heroes, Mass Murder, and Suicide, something, something, something. It's an analysis of all the mass murderers from the very rare case of the guy in Sweden. I can't remember his name. remember yeah. he killed all those kids yeah. Yeah. Uh, who identify completely with right-wing uh, isolationist policies. Yeah. But yet, within his huge manifesto, you find kernels of truth of things that are acknowledged in sense. Mm. You know, obviously, I'm not advocating any of that. But he goes through and talks about the, the underpinning of what... Happens to people when they take that kind of journey. Their sense of loss, their mm. their locked lack of inclusion, their outrage. There, even the kids like Diebold, uh, Dylan, and uh, the, yeah. the Columbine guys. Right. He goes through their work and, and analyzes what it is that sets people into that into that that you know that trajectory. And it it ultimately his conclusion is that you can have a competitive neoliberal society, not expect these side effects. And that's in the more inequality and the more class divides, the more isolationist, the more winning people will see, the more competitive, the more, as a side effect, you are going to get the extremities of Islamic terrorism, the more you're going to get more mass shootings. I mean, going postal, my father used to be a postal worker before he retired, and he talked about the condition in the post office and how it had this breeding ground for an antagonism because of the way the state corporate structure was set up. And it was absolutely no surprise when people finally flipped out in the 80s. Really? And pulled out guns. And that was the very first of real mass shootings in the U.S. Yeah, I, forget I remember that. that expression going. And then postal. it suddenly started right. to move into other businesses. And you, right. again, you have this, the, first, the ground, foundation of neoliberal, neoliberal capitalism, or capitalism in general, neoliberalism is just more exaggerated, it's an intolerant view on the global level, but is that you're alone. You're right. alone you're and your you're, you have to compete. And from yeah. that kernel seed yeah. comes the complete antisocial dynamic. Yeah. And it's sad to me that every time someone pulls out a gun in some you know, random place, zero psychologists are coming forward to make any relationship to this. Yeah. Because it's like, it's like tuberculosis. You know? Just because you're exposed to it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to develop the disease. Right. It's a s- smaller portion of people across population level that will be those catalysts of destruction. And yet no one, no one sees that. And that's troubling to me.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. If there was something you said that I fucking lost it.
2: Well, there's one yeah, other thing I want to mention yeah, before yeah, I forget. It's, uh, it's it's just an aside. Oh, it, oh, I oh, got it. Go ahead. Go it's, ahead. Uh, yeah, I just read recently that in you know Nordic Scandinavian countries they've they've done so well and they've been under the radar with their approaches in public health. And over the course, I believe, the past ten years, they've been reducing child drug abuse and alcoholism. And and uh, I can't remember the exact uh, country, but it was down by eighty hmm. percent. And uh, and they said all they did was create extracurricular, as they described it, activities in the community and made it open and free so the kids can go and actually have communal presence and engage in, in arts and sciences and look in the United States. You know, we've been cutting the budgets for all of that stuff and they were able to reduce drug abuse and alcoholism by 80%. Yeah. It's so fundamental but yet so lost you know this, anyway go well, on well see that's the thing I,
0: I think we we misunderstand the incentives of of society our society if we wanted to reduce drug abuse or we wanted to reduce violence or child uh, teen pregnancy and so on there are well established ways to do that yeah the, it's it's exactly it's, the premise is wrong that we're try, that we want to <laughs> you and i want to uh-huh. but the society doesn't want to no. because it would you know, and, and that's where I get into this, this systemic thing where it's like, you know, people say to me, Oh, come on, man, you're too hard on the oil companies or you know, they're good people who work at Exxon. And like yeah, okay. There may, there may be good people who work at Exxon, but you know, I always say if if the CEO of Exxon went down to Peru with his son and did an ayahuasca experience and had an epiphany and came, like you'd had and came back and said, "Holy shit, we got to stop this deep water drilling. We can't. This is wrong." He'd be out before lunch. And if the board happened to agree with him, they'd be out. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if they're good people exactly. because People don't run companies. Companies run people.
2: Yeah. It's the That's the self-driving it's, bus. It's structuralism. Yeah, it's as exactly. Gandhi said, he, there's a big quote on the Gandhi Institute by Johann Goldtung that describes you can't blame the colonizers. They were involved in a structure that supported their their agent right. as an agent of that structure. And that—that is—it's a profoundly humanizing thing to view people like that because, it, again, it, it stops that ridiculous polarization that is, fills our media, yeah. that fills the general academic community, that fills the entire legal system, is premised on that, absent of all public health science, absent of anything of causality of what happens to kids, absent of anything yeah. related to poverty. People still, you know, what was it? Uh, one of the spokesmen today for the Trump administration, uh, last week for Trump administration, said that that uh, the crime in Chicago is out of control, and it's obviously a law enforcement issue and a moral problem. Yeah. Now, that is just as archaic as you can get. Right. There's hideous poverty and in socioeconomic inequality. Right. Um, and there's other things to be said about that, too, in terms of socioeconomic inequality and its effect. If you're familiar with Robert, um, of uh, the spirit level with... Um, spirit level, yeah, I have yeah. it right over there. somewhere so, and yeah. that's so... In, in, it's fantastic. It is, yeah. and it, it shows, it indicts, it indicts class directly because we've been arguing class is an innovation motivator, remember? That's what we're taught. Oh, well, you see people with a lot, you want to get yeah. to that point, which means right. you have to innovate and do something good for society, which is a complete myth. But the truth is, the more class uh, separation you perceive... The more anxiety you generate, right. the more destruction. So it's, it's, you, know, you go to these cultures that haven't been you know, polluted by media and TV, and they're so happy. Right. They live in minimalistic environments, and their happiness index is off the chart. But the moment you throw them, there's something about a revolutionary, something about our psychology in general. The moment you throw them into a society where they see all of this excess and things they don't have, things they never even thought of, suddenly it pollutes and just creates destabilization, not only in the mind, but in the society. Although those people generally reject the option to join this society oh yeah if they can yeah they're they're, they run away now it's hard to escape now in the global community that it is um and going back to that minimalism there's something else i was going to say completely forgot (laughs) (laughs) good uh yeah we'll take turns forgetting what we were going to
0: say and i'll cover for you now uh there's i just want to read this this is a, a wonderful book i I talk about a lot. Um, oh, okay. It's called Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes by Daniel Everett. Okay. He's a linguist who went and lived with these... He went as a missionary initially, and he ended up living for, I think, 25 years with uh, the Pinaha people of the Upper Amazon. Yeah, that's
2: right. I'm reading read about them. Um, are they still around, the Pinaha?
0: Yeah, they are. Um, but, of course, you know, it's yeah. harder and harder sure, all sure. the time. But, uh, yeah, this is... Uh, he says... If your life is unthreatened, as far as you know, and everyone in your society is satisfied, why would you desire change? How could things be improved? Especially if the outsiders you came into contact with seem more irritable and less satisfied with life than you. I once asked the Pinaha during my early missionary years if they knew why I was there. They said, you're here because this is a beautiful place. The water is pretty. There are good things to eat here. The Pinaha are nice people. That was and is the Pinaha perspective. Life is good. Their upbringing, everyone learning early on to pull their own weight, produces a society of satisfied members. This is hard to argue against. It
2: is. Yeah. And that goes to show that it's really the, the sense of social inclusion Right. that's really the wealth. Exactly. It's, yeah. Exactly. Elsewhere,
0: he says, the Pinaha laugh about everything. They laugh at their own misfortune. When someone's hut blows over in a rainstorm, the occupants laugh louder than anyone. They laugh when they catch a lot of fish. They laugh when they catch no fish. They laugh when they're full. They laugh when they're hungry. Since my first night among them, I've been impressed with their patience and happiness and kindness. This pervasive happiness is hard to explain, though I believe the Pinaha are so confident and secure in their ability to handle anything that their environment throws at them that they can enjoy whatever comes their way. This is not because their lives are easy, but because they're good at what they do. Uh-huh. So we, we live in this world that's changing so quickly, none of us are prepared for it. You know here I am struggling with this technology that didn't exist 2 years ago yep. and then 2
2: years from now I'll have to learn a new thing you know it, and why is that it's because of the social inclusion what's what materialism has got the public got the western civilization specifically by the balls mm. because the more something comes forward the more people start to incorporate it right. and the more you're left behind if you don't as well. Right. You like need I to have join this, in. this stupid yeah. thing. Yeah. I don't care about any of the features on He's this thing. He's holding up truth. his cell phone, by <laughs> the way. Oh, yeah. The and
0: iPhone 7, I
2: believe. <laughs> brought to you by Apple. And, you know, I, I was the, well, the last in fact to get a cell phone back in the day. No, because me I too. thought to myself, I like, I don't it. want this. I don't want people bugging and me. The early oh, bosses were all calling dicks. Me.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they all had their their holsters and shit.
2: And the only reason you did it because eventually your friends like, oh, I tried to call you yeah. and, oh, I got to show you this thing or yeah. I need my GPS. Yeah. And suddenly, yeah. and now no one remembers anything. No one can get around anymore. Right. You know, we're, we're so dependent in a very negative sense on technology. And again, I'm very pro the positive attributes of it. If we can stabilize the development of technology in the sense of its purpose, yeah. not the frivolousness of it, not the vanity of it, yeah. not the extraneous things that are giving people ADD. Have you heard of Tristan uh, Harris? I know the name actually.
0: Yeah, he, he was on Sam Harris's podcast. He was on the Bill Maher show. He worked at Google. He's a he's a technology ethicist.
2: Okay, I think I know what you're talking about. But I'm not familiar with
0: really him. interesting guy. Uh, the the episode with Sam Harris is, is well worth listening to. And he gets into this thing about how uh, he, his his argument is technology is not neutral. Hmm. That's you know everyone says it's a tool. You can use it for good. You can use it. For, he's like, no, okay. there are hundreds of engineers whose only job at each of these apps is to get you to spend more time there. Yeah. Because this is an attention economy, and yeah. your attention is the, is the commodity yep. that everyone's trying to control. So it's not neutral. Well, it could
2: be neutral, but because of the incentives of marketing, it's not by right. any means. No, right. it's, it's horrible. Yeah. I, uh, it's, look at, and not to mention the value of arbitrary things. We have, what is this thing called Snapchat? Yeah, and it has a value of billions of dollars yeah. in the market.
0: He says, by They're the just, way, that's the worst one. Oh,
2: it's it is. Yeah, and it has. It's all based on marketing embedded and the advertisement associations to what you're photographing. Right. And I'm thinking of myself as a former trader. I'm like, I can't believe this stupid arbitrary thing as a market value yeah. of something like six to eight billion dollars yeah. it was I mean that if that isn't indicative of just a complete separation of reality the abstraction of technology I don't know what it is yeah um, not yeah. to mention all the other negative things that's again it's in the hands of what we're doing now technology is a very negative force on multiple levels and it, it worries yeah. me yeah much.
0: we've veered so far away from uh, you know we've wandered so far away from home that I, I kind of hope that I, and again, this—I'm I, I, not aware of the extent of my own bias, so there's no one really is. Sure. So who knows? Sure. But I feel like we're at this moment historically where enough—you know—there's this this quote I I pull out all the time from Arthur Miller, who said, "An era can be considered over when its basic illusions have been exhausted." Yeah. And I feel like we are at a moment where the basic illusions of Western civilization are exhausted. A lot of people, 20 years ago this wasn't true, but now a lot of people are looking at the world and they're saying this doesn't work. This isn't working. Yeah. It's not working ecologically. It's not working economically. I'm not richer than my parents were. I'm not going to live as long as my parents. Things aren't getting better. There are indeed states in the U.S. with declining lifespan. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and you know even if you look at, at black people, as a subset, sure. their, their oh, lifespan is, is equal to oh, like Rwanda. Oh, it's it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And infant mortality and all that. So I do think it's this amazing moment where, where people are open to other ways of thinking. I yeah. mean, that's the resonance that your film and, and hopefully this book will, uh, will what, capitalize on.
2: Yeah. What I find is that people are angry and they do see the problems. The question is, do they know the solutions? And that's, what I'm, that's my goal yeah. these days. That's why yeah. you know, people want to check the book out. It's, I realized after complaining for years, if we can't present something to replace what is effectively a bad social psychology emanating down from our social system, overarching and ruining yeah. and polluting, uh, we, we're not going to get very far because we clearly, clearly the protests in the street... And the general activist community, as disparate as it is, it's all broken up and fragmented. The environmental activists, the human rights activists, the regional civil rights activists, you have this spread. And it's a divide-and-conquer phenomenon in the sense, from the perspective of the power establishment, as long as everyone's still fighting and separated and confused and isolated and myopic, then nothing will change. And the elite preserve their positions. But but if they come together, and that's why they, they take the economic focus and demand and create, in fact, because in the new realm, you know, we have the power to design and create in a way that we never had before. Like imagine, and this is the kind of world that I envision, a participatory economics where you're connected to systems like CAD, computer-aided design and engineering, and you have these systems connected and networked to the resources of the region or the planet, and you're able to, in open source, actually design a phone. You're able to design anything. You can design a transit system. You can design the architecture of your society in open source, actively in real time. Always, I mean, collectively speaking, more minds are better than one if organized Mm -hmm. properly. There is a deep wisdom which is proven through open source. You know that experiment with counting how many marbles are in the jar? No.
0: You know uh, it's an amazingly powerful thing. I, I think a Daniel Kahneman might have written about it. I've heard of it. Was it again? So the so the, the experiment is they've got this big-ass jar, and they've got marbles or jelly beans or something, and there are thousands of them in there, right? And so they, they ask people to guess how many are in there. And, of course, it's way off. Sure, but sure. when they get to, like, I don't know if it's a 1,000 guesses or 5,000 guesses, there's a certain point at which the statistical average is extremely accurate. Amazing, yeah. So there is exactly what you're saying. There is some wisdom in crowds that, that's demonstrable but incomprehensible
2: somehow. Well, you have the, again, back to the, the sharing nature of what has actually driven things forward, the sharing of ideas, mm. not the hoarding you know, and the right. illusions. Right. So you have the historical development. I mean, what it took for this to be made, this phone, took effectively an eon. Of, yeah. of technological advancement and right. science, and yet we put a name on it, a brand on it, as though someone like Bill Gates or or Steve Jobs magically came up with this. Right, which is that individualistic neuroses that we have to get yeah, away from. Yeah, you're right. And at the same and, time, and you have
0: externalization as well. Yeah, yeah, and
2: and no one really perceives that. So, in other words, the I mentioned this kind of participatory economic process, it would it would it would exponentially increase innovation. Mm. It would also remove the marketing focus that gets people to just buy things for the sake of somebody else's benefit people falling victim to that cultural manipulation through right. advertising. Right. So you eliminate all that and you finally are able to establish a level playing field where people... That it requires one fundamental shift and that is the dramatic sharing of resources throughout a region or the world. Somebody... It, the, the cool thing though with the rise of technology is that you won't need due to local, due to um, more with less, what Buckminster Fuller called ephemeralization, is mm. you familiar with that term? Mm. It's the macro observation that over the course of time the entire, due to design, the entire, uh, the entire industrial complex gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So you can imagine right here in Topanga, eventually, all the food being grown in advanced systems, mm. while all the goods that you see are actually printed regionally as well, 3D mm. printing through large industrial systems, large in the sense compared to, excuse me, large in the sense compared to, say, a normal 3D printer, but these systems that can be created locally create localization, and you tap into the design mechanism yourself if you care to, along with millions of others or whoever's in your region, and then you are able to build out this this, uh, engagement, and then the goods are produced and so on. And in the highest extreme of that, there would be no money involved because it wouldn't be necessary right. once you reach that level of efficiency. Right. Now, that's a, that's, a, that's a, clearly an idealism, but I think you could even do it in an existing economy, a mixed economy that we develop where you just eliminate the corporate structure and start to use the actual advent of communication technology in a positive participatory way. Now, that's the, what I propose in the book, which is far more detailed than what I just said. Yeah. But if we can achieve even a kernel of that, right. those transitions, the five transitions are the use of automation over labor, because we can't keep people employed holistically. We need to focus on automation. Yeah. It, is, it is what has produced the abundance that we've seen. Yeah. And then there's the access society. Property has to be shut down, not in the sense that no one owns anything or has no rights, so to speak, in a legal sense. But way away from this property-based society, we see where we actually incentivize people to share cars, to share large systems, to return things to places where other people can use them, and in a more deliberate sense of recycling, Hmm. Uh, both grassroots, in a sense, and both high-tech as well. Then you have the open-source mechanism. You need that. That's the driver of innovation. Get rid of corporations, hoarding the property. We need to actually understand what we have out there. We don't, we don't even know how much oil we have. Hmm. But no one's going to tell us the actual truth. It's right. so all these ridiculous projections. Right. We don't right. even know anything about the resources of this planet because they're all being conditioned and, 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 excuse me, all being hoarded information-wise by corporations. They have no need tell the public in fact it's in, they're against their interest in right. so. people think diamonds are rare they're not rare yeah no it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's manufactured really scarcity Yeah. so then you ears. have localization as I just implied that's yeah. where people get away from globalization you know, the average American food plate travels about 1400 miles that's hmm. a lunacy yeah. the amount of hydrocarbons that goes into the, the right. strawberries that right. you could easily create through advanced agriculture and closed systems yeah and then you have this kind of network feedback system that implied to implied. Excuse me. I talked about the design system that could be constructed, which basically tracks what people are doing. Because people have argued in historical, economic, historically in economic arguments, people like Ludwig von Mises, uh, these these where the libertarian foundations are. They say without money, without means of exchange, and the preferences. Excuse me, the preferences can't be understood. We can't understand supply and demand. We can't have the balance that we see, which is extremely crude, actually, in, in market economics. That's thoroughly gone and debunked, because we have beautiful tracking sensor systems through the Internet. You can imagine a Wi-Fi being created in a city that is connected to all the exchanges that happen without the need for actual currency. Again, that's the farthest extreme. Kind of happening with credit cards. It is. And, and it's already Trump happening. Payments. So yeah. that that uh, economic calculation problem, as he called it, which has been held up by this, you know, more uh, Ayn Rand, you know, libertarian philosophy, uh, that's thoroughly debunked. Fuck Ayn Rand. Yeah, fuck Ayn Rand. Jesus. And Alan oh, Greenspan damage the damage that she did. Unbelievable.
0: Is unbelievable yeah. Yeah. And oh, that's it. crazy. Yeah. Listen, we, we're we coming up on two hours oh, here, all right. and it feels like 15 minutes. I, know, I, I, know. I could pick your brain for days, man. I really enjoy this. Absolutely. Me too, man. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you for
2: having me. I appreciate yeah.
0: it. Yeah. You live in L.A.? I do. Culver so City. Maybe we can do a, a part two one of these days. Love to. I feel like, you know, I wanted to sort of get into the nitty-gritty of like, okay, how is this going to come about, because I know in your book you're... Um, you you propose actual solutions it's not just a sort of you know whinging as my book is uh, <laughs> <laughs> so um, I mean you know I got to that point where it's like okay where's the prescriptive element mm-hmm. and I'm not comfortable with prescriptive it's elements hard. yeah because the
2: moment you do that people's hair raises up they...
0: you, yeah you create a confrontational thing and also you know it starts to reduce uh, like what I what I did in Sexaton and what I'm trying to do in this book is just say look Here's the problem. Here's a way of looking at it. Then use this to apply to your own life and figure out what works for you. Yeah. But the minute I'm saying like, "Oh, I think you should have an affair, or you know, or your wife should sleep with other men or yeah, you know hard. you should masturbate more or whatever. <laughs> get the invisible hand in the bedroom uh you know then it becomes a problem so what yeah. what I'm doing in this book is I'm and in fact, maybe you, you can uh, help me with this or put me in touch with people. But I'm looking for stories of people who are, have changed their lives by bringing their lives more into alignment with the principles of prehistoric life. So, for example, finding community and raising children together or growing their own food and knowing where the food comes from. And they're not thinking like, oh, I'm going to have a paleo life. But they're finding like, oh, I feel so much better now. Sure, sure. And my, my kids are happier. And so I'm going in a couple of days, I'm flying out to North Carolina to, to visit a farm where people are doing
2: this. So I'm just going to tell stories. Like, so have, you been to the, have you been to the kibbutz in Israel? I've never been to a kibbutz. I've, no. I've never actually been, that I know people that grew up in the kibbutz. Yeah. And they didn't use money. It was all community-driven. Yeah. Driven. yeah. Uh, that's a great example. Israel has, is, of course, a dark political history. Yeah. But as far as the, the, the existence of this old, ancient, social... Very, you know, very tribal. Very unique China, and, yeah. and and creative and, and fascinating.
0: And, and women like are autonomous and have... Yeah, I mean, they're right up there with yeah. the men. And,
2: and then there's all those this events and stuff, you know, I, you know, things like Burning Man have become so popularized and commercialized now, but in, in its original start, everyone saw it as such a great enlightenment event because they're separating themselves from society. Right? People use a basic barter system, right? Yeah, um, and a gift economy. system actually too. Yeah, yeah there's, they don't allow at least they, I'm sure they do to some effect, but it's not intended to be any kind of sale oriented yeah. environment. Yeah, yeah. I was going to do a documentary a long time called Counterculture. And I, it was all about people just living differently across the world, but I never got a chance to do it. So yeah. I'll go back to my notes. I can send and you. Maybe you know. we'll spur each other on. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for doing this. Absolutely, man. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, this. totally. Yeah.
0: I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast a buck a month, five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more, or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. The other way you can support the podcast is if you buy shit through amazon.com or you know someone who does please direct them through the link on my page, chrisryanphd.com. You click on that baby once, bookmark the landing page on Amazon, and then 8 to 10% of whatever you spend will come to support the podcast at no extra cost to you or your loved ones. Thank you to Basin and Range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast. Very funky little tune there uh, called The Bright Side of the Sun, I believe. You can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners, a good place to do that is on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking, all one word. There's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes. I drop in occasionally and say hello, answer questions, whatever. Uh, Thanks to Shore Design T-shirts. Our garage is full of them. My mom has them all organized as only she can. Julie, thank you to Julie, my mom. She'll send those T-shirts out to you if you order them, everything we've got in stock is from Shore Design t-shirts in Thailand and you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at carseyblanton.com C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N dot com She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear which is called Smoke Alarm and it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can because Ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett.
3: He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you. Just because I want to and what's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone Shit.